Hey folks, thanks for joining me for this episode of the Embellished Podcast, a podcast focused on product stories, product storytellers, interesting brand ambassadors, and any other tangent that I happen to come up with. Whether you're a bourbon fan, geek, casual observer, or someone who is just floating through this channel, you're sure to waste a few minutes and I hope you enjoy what I have to say. Um, if you got here by chance, please take a moment to go hit the subscribe button. I can be found on any podcasting platform that exists. If you can't find me on a platform, send me an email at embellishpod at gmail.com and I'll try to get that taken care of. I also generally live stream these episodes around 9.30 on Wednesday nights. As you can tell, we're doing it at 8.30 tonight because I have a special guest. You can find all of my links on Instagram at embellishpod or Twitter with the same handle, TikTok as well. Not sure what that platform's for, but we're going to see what happens. I have a website at www.embellishpod.com. That is also a place to pick up any links, episode details, and even some one-off terrible tasting notes. Today is February the 2nd, 2022. And we're going to have Alan Bishop from French Lick Spirits, the Alchemist Cabinet, Distillers Talk, the Alan Bishop Day, and so, so, so much more um, joining us tonight. Uh, thank you for joining me, Alan. I really enjoy your presence on social media. And this is thank not um, one of those like pat you on the back things. I, I mean, it is pat you on the back. You, your, your presence, at least from the things that I watch and, and, and participate in, like Distillers Talk or whatever, it's sort of refreshing, like stepping outside of a nice warm house on a really, really cold, brisk day. It just kind of hits you and slaps you in the face, but it's also got like a degree of purity to it. So I remind super, you that you're alive a little bit. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Remind you that you're alive <laughs> and that um, sometimes the world is uh, full of shit, but the fresh air is not. So, yeah, um, absolutely. No, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on, man. And uh, that's the goal is to to uh, to make people realize, A, that good spirits can be made outside of Kentucky and uh, B, that the distilling industry is ridiculous because it's literally the only other industry that these sort of things can happen in is the pro wrestling industry. So don't take it too seriously. Yeah, that's you're that's very, very, very spot on. I do appreciate you for joining me because I do have a small um, podcast here. Don't have a huge following and I'll caveat this. And I said it before we started. If any of the questions I toss out, you have any objection to just Tell me to fuck off. Doesn't matter. You know, what, whatever you want to do. <laughs> um, before we get too far into whiskey, I do want to. So you you started in farming slash gardening slash trying to sell unique crops. Did, did I remember this correctly? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I guess really started even before that as a kid. I mean, just growing up in a family of of. You know, they worked at my my dad and my grandpa both um, worked at a furniture factory and and we had a tobacco farm. So I grew up on a tobacco farm and making moonshine. That's really that's really kind of where my roots are at. So um, and then later that got turned into uh, organic farming and, and then subsequently tied to distillation because it turns out that everybody in Ohio Valley has a fucking garden and you can't make any money at the farmer's market. So. Unless you sell moonshine at the farmer's market. You're exactly right. This is the thing that I always find humorous and we're similarly aged, but um, whenever I was a kid, you know, my entire family, we grew gardens. You're, you're right. You know, organic farming was a thing we did. Um, not because we made a choice not to use chemicals just because we couldn't afford, the afford chemicals, the shit. right. Yeah. You just did whatever you did and spent a lot of time hoeing weeds from around tomato plants. But, oh. What used to be a sign of being like, oh, you don't have any money is because you can and put up all of your food is now like a sign of being heat, like hip and trendy and chic. And what the hell? Like, how did this happen? There's an old school saying here around uh, Pekin, Indiana, pecking, as we call it, uh, just because you're 
just because you're poor don't mean you have to be dirty and now that's popular right <laughs> you know so yeah, it's and you know when i'm having to fight hipsters for you know cannon lids and and, and rings I, i'm not okay with that no yeah absolutely not well and and the the true mark of whether or not they're sustainable in any way shape or form and everybody has this weird kind of fucked up view of what sustainable means as far as farming goes anyways because even even the old uh, estates you know back in the day they weren't sustainable of their own accord they had to trade outside etc cetera, etc cetera. and so everybody has this idea this grand utopian idea of i can i can survive and i can do all these things myself listen as someone with experience here let me tell you that everything that sounds like a great idea to you where you're like oh, i'm gonna grow a garden i'm gonna save seeds and i'm gonna have chickens i'm gonna have ducks and there's gonna be some pigs over here everything you add to the system wants to fuck up another part of the system the first chance it fucking gets and it will and you know i, I even remember probably what got me interested in this um you know i was into the heirloom seed thing before it was ever popular um but we say we always had you know a couple tomato varieties we saved seed from but even the tobacco thing we grew burley tobacco that's mm -hmm. what we made our money off of but uh you know by the time my dad took the farm over in the mid 90s um you know hybrid burley tobacco was was already a thing it had been for a long time you know mm -hmm. since the, the at least since the green revolution we were still saving tobacco seed and planting an old open pollinated burley tobacco yep. and uh not only because seed was relatively expensive for what it was uh but also because that tobacco was adapted to our farm and because we had to use less fertilizer and we had to use less chemicals Mm -hmm. And even though our tobacco was smaller than some of the stuff that went to market, we could make more money off of it because it was a better quality right. uh, because it was up against that adversity. And tobacco is one of those crops, strangely enough, that as long as you can keep the bugs off of it and you don't get a hellstorm that damages it, uh, the more adversity that you throw up against it, the better quality right. it actually is. So, yeah. So I'm in, I'm in the heart of West Kentucky dark fire country, you know? And yeah. That's we. We're very familiar with that. I spent a lot of time, you know, eyeball even with uh, yep. suckering tomato, suckering uh, tobacco. I, I never, oil. never was jealous of you, you dark fired guys and those little short madole plants. And ha I could fuck. <laughs> I mean, at least the shit we were dealing with was, was like, you know, five, six feet tall. So it's at eye level when you're topping it as opposed to that stuff, that, you know, two, three feet tall. And oh, no, it's man. not fun when it's three. It's, it's not bad when it's three feet tall when you're three feet tall, right? Like, right. you know, but when yeah. you get older, yeah, it does get problematic. They, they're getting taller, but. You know, it was always interesting whenever I was in college, I would have friends that would come down here from Chicago or New York or somewhere else. And inevitably, I would always have to start at the beginning of the fall semester and be like, look, don't call the fire department when you see it's a, a barn that has smoke coming yeah. out of it because Normal. we fire our tobacco here. I know it's like a super regional thing, but it's what happens. Like, it's part of it. And take it, you know, show it. there's nothing that smells better in the world to me than that. But it's amazing. We're very familiar with, with the tobacco situation. Or or even just going to uh, what, you know, memories are, are usually distinctly tied to either aromas or sounds mm -hmm. or tastes. And one of the one memory that I can that, well, multiple memories of the same thing, but one place I can take myself back to uh, no matter how. And I think even if I live to be 110, this is like the one thing I'll always I'll always know is the smell of the tobacco warehouse. When we went to go take our tobacco to market December and January. Uh, just that aroma and you know like all other 
you know, traditional arts in the United States, that's about fucking died out. And the, the warehouse that we used to sell to was in, uh, it was on what was at that time, the outskirts of New Albany, Indiana. And now there's a fucking Walmart there. I've literally walked in and bought a pack of cigarettes from the same place where I used to go sell tobacco. So it's, you know, it's, it's funny you say that the, I, I work in uh, software now, right? So mm-hmm. because I, I worked in my, my grandfather grew up doing construction. I grew up in a rural area doing, you know, working in tobacco, helping out with construction stuff. And I realized I want to go to college, so I don't have to do that because I've never met a bricklayer that didn't have yep. a bad back by 45. Absolutely. Um, but the company I work for now, we used to be uh, situated in two old tobacco barns that were converted into office fixtures. And so we worked there and it was actually a tobacco barn my grandfather had built. And it was, it is a terrible office because it's not insulated. It's not made for human uh, humans to exist. And you had to take out the tiers because the tiers were too short for a floor, you know? Yeah. Um, but we recently renovated and moved to a new building, which was the in town tobacco warehouse was restored. And so at least to some degree, um, the building itself was restored and it's, you know, it's like a historical building and you can't change the windows or whatever. And it's a beautiful facility, but it's now a software engineering building. You know, that's not a thing here anymore. Well, you know, a lot, a lot of people don't know this. I don't know how much they even talk about it on tours, but Peerless used to be a tobacco warehouse. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't ever, I don't know how long that that operated when it went out of business, but I know my family sold tobacco into that warehouse a couple of times way back when. So it's funny how that works. And you mentioned something else. Only people who are familiar with tobaccos really understand that. But, you know, boy, weren't those tears fun back in the day when you had to fucking hang tobacco. And it was always the young kid that got put up in the very top of the barn you know, on the wobbly ass piece of wood. And when you, God forbid, you say something to your dad about that piece of wood being wobbly, because what's he going to yeah. say? Oh, it's been there for a hundred years. We'll be there for another hundred. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And th- the thing is, I would rather be on the top because here's the thing is if you don't stagger right, you end up getting the sweat that drips from the guy above you onto you. And then oh. it drips. Out. if you're the guy on the bottom, you're just dodging everyone else's just <laughs> absolute filth, absolute oh. filth, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you another one that you'll like about tobacco. Uh, and uh, maybe people appreciate these conversations. I don't know, but uh, I think they do because there's obviously there's connection at least between cigar and cigars and, and whiskey anyways. Um, so my grandma, when my dad took over the farm, she, she grew up, all my family's from Kentucky. They're all from uh, the Bishop sides, all from like Greensburg, uh, Hodgenville area. Mm-hmm. Um, the Wilsons are all from down around um, Oneida, Manchester and that area. So all sides of family grew tobacco. But my grandma, of course, she lived through the Depression, World War II. And every year, every time it rained, she would go up to the tobacco field. And my grandma was like four foot nothing. She would literally get down on her hands and knees and she would crawl through the field and she'd pull all the bottom leaves. They got mud on them. She'd bring them home. She would wash them under just, you know, water. And then she would hang up a clothesline either on the porch or in the basement and then start curing that tobacco. Mm-hmm. And my dad told her one time, he goes, I don't know why you do that. Right. And she goes, well, I'll tell you why. So she had always just thrown it into bulk, right. Not thinking anything of it. not want to mess with it. And she goes, I'll show you why I do this. So they made a bet one year, maybe hundred dollars, whatever. I don't know, mm-hmm. but that her little tobacco crop that she cured herself, she kept it, she kept it for two years. She actually took it through the whole cycle. She Mm-hmm. Took it through the curing and she took it through fermentation and then she made it wow. in old hands the way they used to do it tied off, you know, with mm-hmm. an actual tobacco leaf. She sold 20 pounds of tobacco for almost three times what my dad sold the entire crop for. 
a little bit of patience and a little bit of care creates something that is uh, yep. unique and incredibly profitable. And that's, it, it, yeah. So we could never talk about whiskey and we could talk about that. And that would be fine with me because that's, uh, I like talking about stuff like this. This is, this is, there's a direct line that can be drawn between the history of whiskey and the history of the United States and the history of agriculture. They're all intrinsically tied together. Um, yeah. What you're talking about is storing tobacco for long-term utilization and whiskey is storing grain for long-term utilization. Yeah. That's what it really is about. You know, so. Well, and ironically, you know, distilling being agricultural is what it is, obviously. Uh, and tobacco being tied to agriculture and to whiskey production. A lot of tobacco growers were whiskey producers, whether legal or illicit. But mm-hmm. I started my distilling career in our old, old tobacco barn. That's that's where I had my first still at. That's where I had um, all the way up into my 20s. I had a 150 gallon pot still that we basically operated out of that old barn. So, mm-hmm. And that's illicit distilling is one of those things that, you know, it's a fun thing for people to portray in, uh, you know, in, in pop culture, right? Like right. make a movie out of it or whatever. And it's, you know, like the, the heist, the thing that was done on Netflix or talking about, you know, uh, Ridge runners or any of those things like that's super fun. But for folks that grew up in, in rural parts of the South or, you know, the South, we'll say that for now. Um, it, it's not uncommon to know like six or seven people that they've got to still, they make, maybe they make some for their own use. Maybe they make it for other people, whatever, but it's not nearly as rare as pop culture would have you believe. And it's not nearly, it can be in some sense, but in most situations, it's not nearly as um, sensational as, as not, it's made out to be. Not nearly, not nearly. And that's one of the, that was, that was like culture shock for me going into the legal industry was how much more actually crooked the legal industry was than what the illicit industry was. Right. Like literally, I remember like when I first got hired on a copper and Kings, I had two or three weeks where I was like, what the fuck? This is how this works. You know, just trying just seeing how it all worked out. But no, so I'm always um, as a not right at the second representing the company that I work for. This is Alan Bishop speaking. I am always an advocate for home distilling being Mm -hmm. legalized. Uh, Moonshining got perilously close to dying out. Mm -hmm. A lot of categories did die out, obviously, with prohibition and also industrialization in the 1870s. Uh, distilled spirits uh, to to begin with, but the last rough estimate I saw, there's anywhere between 200 to 250,000 current home distillers in the United States, which is mm-hmm. pretty impressive. And thankfully, people are getting more interested in sustainability. And I think uh, even this whole fucking COVID ordeal, whatever, whatever, wherever people land on that right. shit, uh, it is. If nothing else, it's woken people up. It's woken some people up to what could be and why they should maybe learn how to do these things. Yep. And you know, the only issue that I ever have with is is these guys that, I don't know. There's a lot of bullshit obviously on moonshiners and and I blame Magilla entertainment for that as much as anything. Um, But everybody thinks it's some romantic outlaw thing until the first time they ever have to do it to actually pay a bill. Right. And it's not like when I was a kid, just like you, I didn't want to, I didn't want to farm. I don't want to make moonshine. It was just, it was just shit that we did. That was another reason why, Hey, I can't do go do anything fun with my friends or right. go on a vacation with my family this weekend. You know, we're going to be fucking, yeah, how, how many farmers understand the concept of going on vacation? M- modern farmers to a degree do, but yep. like, I can't go on vacation because I have cows or because I have uh, to worry about getting ready for the next growing season, whatever it is. Uh, it's, 
It's an absolutely. It's an obscene. It's not an obscene. It's 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 an outside the box concept for most farmers. I was thinking about it earlier today, actually, because we got this this storm coming in, this winter storm, and uh, for maybe about five or six years before I started distilling legally while I was still really running the farm. And so we had like a hundred to 150 turkeys that we'd raise that were free range and turkeys won't go back into a house. Like you'd have to go out every night and literally like catch them or wrangle them into the fucking house. And then we had like 20 something rabbits. And I was, that's what I was saying about earlier is like, thank fucking God I don't have rabbits anymore. I'd have to go out and fucking switch out their water bottles three times a fucking day and make sure they're not frozen. And none of them are having fucking, babies and sub-zero weather and dying and all mm -hmm. that fucking yeah no i was i was outside wrangling chickens to toss in the coop you know we have them sheerly out of vanity you know, right I have a couple of daughters and having livestock around is a great life lesson you can you know the the circle of life from end to end from you know inception to the end yep. it's a great lesson it's nothing more than that you know we romanticize the idea of oh well, we'll sell eggs for money but god you've got to do that on such a huge scale to make any money I'm not interested in that now that, and then when you get chickens and you end up with chicken math where it's like, I had six chickens and then somebody else got six chickens and didn't want them anymore. And we're fine with ours. We're like, Hey, you want some more chickens? Sh sure. I guess. And then you end up with 40 chickens. That's just where it happens. Yeah. And 32 of them are fucking roosters. And then you got a butcher roosters, right? <laughs> exactly. And yeah. then you, you got like, six ends over here farm management stuff right and you're like all right those are my six i'm gonna keep to breed with or whatever mm -hmm. and then now all of a sudden and i'm all about you know ecology and then wildlife preservation and all that stuff but now all of a sudden not only do we have a hawk and an eagle here and there now they're fucking everywhere and they go tell all their buddies about the chickens right. you have in your yard and then trying to make a living off of it and trying to make money off of it and then you start realizing that the skilling's tied to agriculture, A, so that you can actually make money, and B, so that you can fucking drink yourself through the bullshit. <laughs> so so you find a way with. to cope with it. That is yes. not eating. It's, you know, drinking or, or yep. you know, smoking some of your tobacco, whatever it happens to be. Yeah, it's all, right. it's all super great. Yeah, yeah. You do the best you can. Struggle through it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. All right. So staying in this, I have a, I have a question for you, and this may be outside the box. Um, and, and I apologize if this is not the questions that you're expecting, you know, but I think they're interesting. So we have folks around here that grow sorghum cane for, mm -hmm. for sorghum syrup. Right. And I've had this thing that I've been like rolling over my brain for a while and it got hammered home a little more. I was at the Kentucky bourbon festival this year. And got to watch Pat High speak, which is always super entertaining. Love that guy. Um, and his episode on Distillers Talk with you. I, the only thing that I like more than maybe a Pat Heist episode is Todd Leopold. Like those are the, right. those are the anytime Todd's on, I'm like, fantastic. I'm going to spend an hour and a half. I'm going to enjoy all this. But anyways, he was talking about he had distilled some of the, I assume the cane juice to make a rum type beverage. Yep. Why is no one making beer rum and bourbon from sorghum because the grain heads could be beer or could be a whiskey type beverage not necessarily bourbon but a whiskey type beverage like yeah is, is it just like has somebody tried this and it's crap or yeah so i've i've done a little grain uh sorghum at home in the past and it it honestly it's it's very much kind of like uh sort of buckwheat kind of nuttiness and you could <laughs> because now it falls underneath this is what's interesting so pat was able to get away with calling that a rum because it got approved as a rum, even though it's not technically a rum. Right. But underneath the TTB's new rules they introduced just a couple of years ago, 
Uh, grain sorghum would be recognized as a as a pseudo grain, just the same as as buckwheat or uh, quinoa or amaranth. So you could use it in a bourbon mash bill as long as obviously it was at least fifty one percent corn. Interestingly enough, TTB, however, does not make a differentiation in sorghum grain versus sorghum juice in those regulations. So you could even technically. Now, I'm not saying this is right, but if a guy wanted to really piss off some of the bourbon bros and get some attention, you could technically use some of that sorghum juice right. in a bourbon, and the TTB would still recognize that as being a grain product. That gets back to the sort of the griminess of legal distilling, you know. Right. And, and I, I, you mentioned that, you know, like it, it felt slightly more honest when it was illicit home distilling or whatever, but my interpretation is, is that at that point your word is your bond can people trust you so you have to be um pretty legitimate to do it whereas once there's a rule structure in place now we as humans can find the places where the rules are weak and exploit them and that's just what yeah. we do you know regardless of the structure well and on the on the illegal side so people always worried about you know alcohol having methanol in it and being poisonous and people not knowing what they were doing um, and I, and th there was a lot of that, especially during prohibition. But what I try to tell people a lot of times is most people who, who were that I knew that were selling product that they were making at home, they grew up around it. They knew what they were doing and they wanted to make good product and they didn't want to make anybody sick because a, if you make somebody sick or you make a shitty product, they're not going to come back and buy more of it. And then, B, then people can't be repeat customers. Yeah. And then on top of it, if you make somebody sick, they're going to end up fucking telling the authorities and then the heat's going to fucking be on you. Well, even for, if they don't tell the authorities, it. if they have to go to the hospital and they're, mm -hmm. you know, they're unconscious or whatever. And somebody says, Hey, what happened? Well, they were drinking some, you're opening up a can of worms that you're not. Absolutely. Nobody, nobody's interested in participating in that situation. Yeah. And it, I, I will tell you, uh, having grown up around it and knowing, you know, when I was a kid, they were here, even in Southern Indiana, people don't think of Southern Indiana as being moonshine country, just like they don't think of it being distilling country, but it yeah. is. And it always has been. I probably knew nine, 10 guys that were, that were really into this. And it's, it's been nice to be able to see, this has become a little more open, even though, you know, home distilling is illegal. It's been nice to be able to see people tell their legitimate stories about that background. Mm -hmm. um, and they, there's another parallel there that, that I'm trying to follow up on now. It's still a little sketchy here in Southern Indiana, but you know, those guys all had interesting, crazy stories. And the other stories that I want to get that people are still a little weird about talking about, cause it's not legal here yet. Um, in any way, shape or form, but you know, the marijuana growers that were around here, the Ohio Valley, Southern Indiana and in, in high times in the 1970s was voted the number one place in the United States to grow marijuana. Mm -hmm. Dude, there were tons of growers here. I mean, I went to, I went to high school with, a with a boy who was tied to a, a, a family that was very prominent in the trade. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's, there's crazy stories. And I'm trying to get all those stories now before all those old guys pass away. Right. Cause most well, people aren't recording that information. Nope. It, it's funny. You mentioned that, you know, we, we have our own share of that here in Western Kentucky, but mm -hmm. a few years back, you know, they, they legalized industrial hemp growth in the state of Kentucky. And that was like a big thing. Everybody's like, yeah. And so a whole bunch of farmers just jump out and they're like, I'm going to grow hemp because there's high profitability. And there was for the first two or three years, yep. but they got halfway into the growing season and realized they didn't know what the hell to do with hemp. Yep. And there were no processing factors. There's nowhere yeah, to go with it. Gives a lot of them. One of the, one of the guys I know, he was real smart and he actually had uh, one of the 
purchasers was the one that had fronted him all the money. He was basically working as a contract farmer. And so he made all of his money. A lot of people that were hoping to sell it somewhere didn't. But when they started trying to figure out, like, how do we grow this and how do we effectively do this? A lot of them started calling up their old high school buddies who used to grow uh, marijuana. How do I deal with this? Tell me. And be like, me what do I do? And those those kids made a career of it. It was like, you know, you peruse the the uh, recently out of jail list who got out for, you know, cultivation and you hire that yep. guy and he comes out and he turns around your grow operation for him like that because he yep. knows what to do with it. Well, I, I, I sincerely hope that we see a lot more of that on the distilling side of things too, because I mean, that's how I learned. And when I got hired at Copper and Kings, nobody at Copper and Kings had any distilling experience. They literally relied on a fucking dumbass hillbilly moonshiner from Southern Indiana to set up the protocols so this is one of the things about the industry that bothers me and how, how fucking really pretentious the industry can be, especially with institutions that teach classes and things of that nature. Or, uh, and I'm not going to say his name, although it could, I've talked about it multiple times. Uh, people who write books about mm -hmm. distilling and they, they come out and they do interviews or they teach a class and they say, well, no distillery is going to hire a home distiller as though you're somehow like a low life scum of the fucking earth because you did this illegally. You know what? If a distillery won't hire a home distiller, fuck them. Right. Because the home distiller has shown, you know, if they're any good at what they do, right. It's pretty easy to find out if they're good at it. Right. They have shown that they're passionate about it. They've shown that they're willing to learn it. And there's no matter what scale you're doing it on home distilling is not, an easy art form it's easier now than it was because you can get decent equipment you can get decent grain etc but you got to really put some time and effort and some money into it to learn what the fuck you're doing mm -hmm. right and the funny thing is the the gentleman who has said this now multiple times worked for a distillery that started off with two fucking home distillers and wrote books about home distilling and here this motherfucker is saying uh, any respectable distillery is not going to hire a home distiller dude fuck you what historical brand didn't start from a home distiller? Like Absolutely. what brand that exists did not like new yeah. brands that pop up, you know, right now, like they're, they're, they're maybe not starting from a home distiller, you know, but. Well, there's a, there's an identity crisis in bourbon too. I will say this and this probably won't make me any more popular than I already am. I'm sure, but I don't really care. It, it's a funny industry when there are, and I, I won't get into the political side of things and whatever I believe, but when there are, a number of what I will say very soft people who don't want to talk about any of that illegal stuff. Mm -hmm. They don't want to talk about the rebellious nature of distillation in general, right? Anything that is ugly from history, they don't want to talk about. And this is, this is a new thing that has now happened in the United States where we have this, we have a, we have a, a problem and it, the bourbon industry suffers from it too. And yes, a lot of bad things happen, but we have this tendency to read history from the moment we're living in now. Mm -hmm. backwards and go You're not putting yep. it in the context of the time whenever yep. that thing occurred and that's a different lens entirely and what they should really do is go back and read from 1500 forward and then look at the world and go holy shit things got way the fuck better right <laughs> you know well, and, and the, so I, I will say this it's the exact same thing as anybody who sits inside of any christian church they're trying to apply a book that was written thousands of years ago to modern society and it doesn't work that way because the context of it was then not now right and yeah. so putting the context behind it yep makes a yep. huge difference huge huge difference but yeah. I, I would even challenge that even if you don't put context behind it illicit distilling is not significantly different than home brewing 
home brewing yeah. while legal, most of the folks I would see, I would guess this is, I don't, I don't have any information to back this up, but those folks that went from home brewing to starting a microbrewery to starting, you know, doing something along that lines, likely somewhere in there, they sold some of what they made before they were legally allowed to. Absolutely. The only way they're going to, you're not going to know that you're good at what you do just by asking your friends and family. You know, I do this particular podcast because I enjoy doing it. No one in my family, aside from my wife and children, know I do this because I don't yep. want the artificial. You're doing so good because they're supportive. That's family, friends. They're supportive. That's great. But you have no idea what the truth is, what they got. And so Absolutely. you're going to have to find somebody who's not attached to you through friendship or whatever. And that's likely going to be, you're going to sell it to them. You're going to, that's give why it, you're, going to give I, it you're going to do something illegal to find yep. out. That's why I go out of my way to have friends that are smart asses like Jolie, because I know they're going to fucking tell me exactly what they think, mm -hmm. whether I want to hear it or not. The way that they say it is a different story. Yeah. Um, but you know, it was, it was always pounded into my head, not just with moonshining, but you know, I, my, 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 my dad, you know, he, he smoked a little weed and, you know, he liked to party and, you know, I'm sure he did plenty of other things. I know he did. He had a lot of friends that were like that and nobody ever got dumb and got killed or ended up in prison or anything like that. But it was always found mm -hmm. in my head that, you know, illegal and immoral are two separate issues entirely. Correct. Right. And as long as you're minding your own business and you're not fucking with anybody else and you're not causing anybody any problems and it's none of their fucking business one way or the other. Um, and I think that, that too often kids get protected from that stuff a lot of times. And, and now don't get me wrong go the opposite direction a lot too. And they see a lot of things that they probably shouldn't on TV, et cetera, but mm -hmm. better that they, they, they see some of that stuff when they're younger. Like, I mean, I was always around it, you know, my, I either had the best or worst parents in the world because they didn't, they didn't hide anything from me. Um, and they let me, they'd let me, you'll like this as uh, growing up on a farm too. They would let me drink and stuff when I was a teenager and they'd let my friends come over. And and if their parents were okay, they always made sure they knew their parents and talked to them. Right. If they were fine with it, they'd come over. But there was always an ulterior motive. And the ulterior motive was, yeah, come on over, have fun, get drunk. Because uh, you're going to be up tomorrow morning. The, the next morning. The next yeah. morning going to be miserable. Cutting fucking tobacco and the fucking heat. You know, he, one time, dad, we had a bunch of firewood we had to cut. And he, I had three or four friends over and. He literally at like five thirty in the morning was outside my bedroom window. He beat on the window a couple times and then he fired up a fucking chainsaw. And he's like, "Get your ass up and get out here." Yep, <laughs> I, I, I saw the uh, the wrong end of a post hole digger a number of times in scenarios like that. Or <laughs> here's a shovel and there's a dump truck full of uh, orange gravel. I need you to move it from here to there one Enjoy. week at a time. Yeah, I got I got uh, ironically another tobacco barn story. He decided that when we stopped growing tobacco, that he it was always dirt floor barn, that uh, he wanted to gravel the barn. And so it was summertime. I think I was in seventh grade. So we ordered a triaxle load of fucking gravel. And then he bought, instead of buying a wheelbarrow, and he did it to fuck with me, right? right. He buys a fucking 30-gallon Coleman cooler and a shovel. Right? And it was like, by the end of this week, I want this barn graveled. It's <laughs> me out there just shoveling this Coleman cooler full of fucking gravel, dragging it across the yard, you know, trying to fucking, it was a fucking nightmare. But you know what? Stuff like that is worthwhile. It teaches yeah. you a lot of hard lessons. And, you know, he, he, he's always worked hard his whole life. He worked at a, at a factory that was miserable for 37 years. My grandpa worked at the same factory for 35 years. And when I tried to get off that same factory, he blackballed me twice and I couldn't get on because he refused to let me work there. So. Uh -huh. But he probably did you a favor in the 
He did. Situation. He did. I'm uniquely qualified for two things in life, making whiskey and digging ditches. <laughs> you know, I have a, I have a really close friend of mine that came to work for us and, um, you know, I work in, I work in software, but I work in agricultural software. And so the guy who started our company was a farmer and he always joked if he ever won Powerball, um, he would farm until the money was gone. Um, but yep. in my, my friend's interview, the way he got the job, uh, the, Rick, my old boss, he would say, you know, what is your favorite tool to use? You know, cause he's trying to get an idea for what it is. My friend said, it's a shovel. He's like, I like a shovel because you can do just about anything with a shovel. And he talked about it for like 20 minutes. You know, he came from a construction background, 100% got hired. He may not have been qualified for the job yep. because he was willing to do whatever it took with a shovel. It, it says something about somebody. So I, I can appreciate that making whiskey and, and digging ditches. Yep. Yep. All right. So I have a, another maybe weirdish question. Mm -hmm. So, uh, my journey through American spirits. It's a video series that just came out on YouTube. <laughs> Love those videos, yep. but, so yep. I'm not, but I'm not asking a question about any of the content of the videos in the video. You're sitting there and there's some brass thing that's in your pocket. That's got a long gold chain on it. Yeah. What is that? What was that? So that's called, that's an old, uh, Scottish and Irish thing. And, and they had them over here too, but typically in the 1800s, they were made out of glass over mm -hmm. here. So that's, what's called a, a dipping dog. Um, so it's like a, it's an old fashioned barrel thief legitimately okay. is what it is. So it's a, it's a, it's basically a piece of copper pipe with a bottom on it and a cork in the top on a chain, drop it in the barrel, pull your sample out in Scotland. Um, the hell they may still have a problem with this. I don't know, but a lot of, a lot of the distillery workers, they couldn't afford the stuff they made themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of them would make those dipping dogs and keep it in their boot. Got and that's how they'd get their whiskey to drink on. They'd go in the warehouse and they'd pull on the sample and they'd have it in there and they could drink it. Um, so I bought that a couple of years ago from a guy that was making them. I don't even remember where I bought it from, but um, occasionally if I'm, if I'm going to play the Thomas green character from Hell's half acre or something like that, I'll throw it in a shirt pocket just cause it's a cool little conversation piece. Hey, it, it caught my eye. You know, I enjoyed right. it. That's almost sounds like I wasn't paying attention to the videos. The videos were fantastic, but I kept waiting for that to be addressed. Like what that was. And in what's out there right now, it wasn't. And I'm like, okay, I, I don't. I Very don't know few people have ever asked, that. truthfully. Now, if I drag a Donna jug out to a demonstration, mm -hmm. that gets attention because it's a great big hunk of copper, right? And it, but it ain't a still. And people can look at it and go, that's got to be distilling related, but it's not a still. What the fuck is that? Now, is, that the, is that the yeast jug? Yep. Yep. Okay. That, that, of all the equipment that I have, honestly, more than a still, that probably gets more questions. Right. So you, you, you talk about capturing wild yeast right the idea of that like is this a thing that you just have always done or is it like hey i want to i want to explore what i can do with this um so it developed a little bit more let's say in the past six years um i've always kind of done it not so much capturing it on purpose but like when distilling around the farm so for a while i had this weird obsession i I get weird about stuff like that. I'm obsessive compulsive in that. Like if I get onto something, I go down the rabbit hole and I have to see it. All to the way to the end. I understand yeah, whether it works or it doesn't work. I have to know. And so for a while, when I was a kid on the farm, my thing was, um, I had a, a little five gallon copper pot that went along with a little 10 gallon. My dad, and my grandpa helped me build. And so I would take like a five gallon bucket and I would go to, and not only on my farm, but other farms, I would go to whatever spring that I knew of that existed. And I would say, all right, I'm going to take just doing sugar shine. I'm just going to take, you know, my corn and my sugar out here, this five gallon bucket, this five gallon still. I'm going to use the water out of this spring. I'm going to mash in with that water and I'm going to leave it for an open fermentation. 
and then mm-hmm. I'm just going to see what happens, you know, and it, does the water, does this water affect it differently? Right. Does that water affect it differently? Now at the time, I wasn't really thinking about yeast. It didn't occur to me back then that the yeast might've been having as big of an effect as what it did. But because I wasn't pitching any yeast, and that's the way that I saw my dad and my grandpa always do it was just open air fermentation. We were definitely getting different strains of wild yeast in different places. Now it developed into more of actually trying to capture unique yeast strains. Um, a little later on after, like every, every old practical distiller, I learned how things work, not why they worked. And then because I speak fucking cornbread very fluently, uh, if you're in a legal distilling uh, situation and you start speaking cornbread, the people that put up with that shit for so long, but uh-huh. eventually they would like to know that you also actually have some idea of what the fuck you're doing. So then that led me into researching distilling more and more uh, coming across, particularly a lot of early distilling manuscripts in the U S and some from Europe. Um, but Harrison Hall's the distiller, uh, there's a book called The Practical Distiller. There's another book. I can't remember the name of it. It was published in, um, it's published in Lexington, but it was written by a guy who started distilling in Pennsylvania and then had a distillery actually down in your neck of the woods. Um, this was a 18, 1808 book, I think. Um, but he describes, for example, like the square coffin style stills that uh, mm-hmm. Spencer Valentine, LBL, he, yep. he always thought his his grandfather came up with those, but this is long before that. You know, somebody, for whatever reason, those stills became popular in Western Kentucky is because somebody worked at this guy's distillery and saw that design there and took it to the woods. Um, but those books talked a lot about practical yeast propagation. Now, mm-hmm. they didn't necessarily understand exactly what yeast was, exactly how it was working. They knew that they needed it, and they knew it had an effect on flavor. Uh, and they, they certainly knew that it was not easy to find a good strain. And if you found a good strain, you better fucking take good care of it. Uh, and so they, they describe in great detail how they did that with these Donna jugs, uh, how important the Donna jugs were. Um, you know, there were two, usually in their very early days, there were two Donna jugs per distillery. There was one that gets carried by the distiller to and from work and gets worked every day. It's actively working fermentations. The second one gets sealed up tied off to a chain, thrown into a well where it's cold, there's no oxygen getting to it. And that way, if the distillery burns the fuck down, you've still Mm -hmm. got your yeast strain because you couldn't just go and get another good strain. And that got me interested in, well, you know, these guys, some of them went to the local brewers and got their yeast. Sometimes they'd go to the local baker and get the yeast. But these guys out in the middle of nowhere, where was their yeast? Where did they get it from? Yeah, yeah, That's always the thing that's that's always sort of amazed me about the history of distilling, period, or even making spirits in general, because you've got this interaction with yeast and you know i enjoy the the you go by the alchemist right and so Mm -hmm. to me like alchemy is a place where science and artistry meet but these guys were going out and capturing yeast and creating and completing really complex scientific equations without being able to read or write their own name right it was just a thing that happens and i've always sort of joked if you were able to take you know we have several big meth busts that happen here on a regular basis. If you take one of those guys, like the, the top tier meth cook and you put him through college and you put him through MIT, get a kid, he might cure cancer. Right. Because he's, yeah. he's got the brain for it, obviously, because he's doing something super complicated and that's what distillers are doing as well. And it, we're starting to understand that more and more and more. And, you know, that was one of those things that Pat Heiss mentioned whenever he was talking, he said, you know, they have, I don't know what, 20,000 strains of yeast in yep. his uh, firm solutions. And they've probably only examined a third of those or something like that. There's some that they just still, you don't know what it's going to do. Yep. It may make it taste great. It may make it taste terrible. It may 
be the next novel coronavirus that's going to come out of it. You don't know <laughs> what the hell is going to happen. Well, I, I joke with Pat when we had him on the show, and I, I joke around about Pat all the time because, well, for example, Pat loves fucking Slayer, and I, I love Megadeth. I like Slayer too, but I like to give Pat shit, you know. Um, and Pat, I may be like the the anti Pat, right? Because he he's he's from the very scientific side of things and yeast, and he and I have talked about this, and I'm from the practical side of it, and mm-hmm. I also see his side of it too, which is. Uh, you know, he can't, he can't on a production scale that they're on now, he can't right. fuck around with a lot of these yeast. Cause if he fucks up, he's losing 50 fucking barrels. If I fuck up, I lose five gallons. I'm like, what, whatever. Right. right. You know, yeah, his experimentation pretty- level is a little bit bigger nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I love doing stuff like that. And I love, I love pushing those boundaries. And one thing I've been super excited about here lately, and this ties home distilling nowadays back to the, the old school practical distilling stuff, the stuff that we're seeing with craft distillers now, uh, finally craft distillers are talking about alternative grains. That's something that I've been doing my whole life. It's not new to me and it wasn't new to farm distillers prior to industrialization in 1870. I mean, the spectrum of bourbon prior to 1870 was fucking massive. Mm-hmm. Right. And then industrialization narrows it down. Prohibition narrows it down to just six, you know, and then three or four mash bills, basically all those companies using the same yeast strain, et cetera. Um, so the spectrum is there for it to be great, big, be whatever you really want it to be. Uh, but what I find really exciting is, so they're finally talking alternative grain. There's starting to be little whispers about yeast, just little mm-hmm. tiny whispers starting to come along. What really excites me as, as a previous home distiller slash moonshiners, I still keep up with all the distilling forms, all the, all the home distilling forms. Dude, in the next five to 10 years, when these guys that are into home distilling right now get into this industry, it's going to blow people's fucking minds because the home distillers are playing with things that none of the commercial mm-hmm. distillers have even thought about at this point. Right. Well, they've got all the things to win and nothing to lose at that point because they're home distilling. They don't have a a brand to potentially ruin. And, you you know, you may be on a smaller scale than Pat Heist, but you're still at a production scale making money. Like the risk for the home distiller is I made this thing. It tastes like crap. I'm going to pour it out. I'm not going to tell anybody about it. You know, I'm (laughs) going to bury this mistake and not say a word to another human being. I'm going to try to get something different. And it's that. This is and a- some of their stuff, what I like about what they're doing, though, too, is it's going to push the craft, too. So there will be practical things that they can mm-hmm. do in a commercial setting. And and especially, I will tell you from an equipment point of view in particular, like nobody's really done anything all that new or inventive with uh, pot still for a long time. You can have all kinds of bells and whistles on a pot still, mm-hmm. but nobody's really done a whole lot new. Home distillers are doing fucking stuff that is next level um a good example would be and there's a couple commercial guys using it now uh chris coning out at golden beaver distillery um jimmy jacks out at bald hills the tennessee thumper uh which is really a throwback in some ways to very early alchemical technology but getting vapor and liquid distillation of botanicals while raising the proof at the same time uh that's fucking cool or uh, a soxid extractor uh russia has a huge home distilling uh so it's legal there there's estimated to be as many as 2.5 million home distillers in Russia. There's 30 something companies making stills in Russia. Uh, and so a Soxwood extractor, which is used for essential oil on small labs, still scale stills. Why did nobody ever look at that and scale it up? Well, those fucking people have, they scaled that shit up and now limoncello doesn't take six months. It takes 20 minutes. That's yeah. cool shit. We, we got really close to, so after I was born, my mom was like, Hey, I got to get like a real education. So she went back to school and became a pharmacist, but she's really into homeopathy, alternative remedies, all of these yeah. things. And about five or six years ago, she was like, Hey, what would you think if I got like 
a still for making essential oils. And, and my immediate reaction was, I'm not making any essential oils with that. That's not what all was going to happen there. But she was interested in that. And she was wanting to do, you know, CBD extraction or THC extraction, whatever you can do. Um, it's fantastic. But you, you said a word in there and I'm going to go back to it because I, I wonder if there's a better way to go about this. So you mentioned the word craft, craft distilling, right? Right. And craft distilling. I understand what it means, but most people, when they hear the word craft, they're immediately going to assume inferior product. Right. Craft right. just means different. It means yep. that, you know, you're not trying to chase the same thing that a major producer is because that's ultimately not your goal. You're not working at that batch size. You're not working at that production size. And you may never be interested in that. Do you take craft as a negative term? Do you think there should be a better term? Like, like how, is there a way to solve that problem of people being, because you also have these craft distilleries that like, well, we just opened up a distillery, but they never intended to distill a bottle. They're going to source all over the whiskey forever. And they're just going to call themselves a craft distillery to make a few dollars. Right. right. So uh, is, is there like an art artisan? Like, is there some other label we can be using? I'm, I'm a fucking, hardliner on shit like that and so probably not the best person to ask but like i had i, I posted on uh, one of mike beach's posts the other day about his definition of craft and mike's definition of craft uh falls into everybody's basically craft and i disagree i don't even think that we're craft not truthfully not in any real meaningful way and here's here's why i think to really be a craft distiller and now you could i guess at this point label us a craft distiller because we have we have done these two things that I consider qualifications mm -hmm. to really be a craft distiller. You almost have to be on that home distilling level. Um, if for the very first reason, if nothing else, the first reason is you should have to take a crop from seed or plant through the growing process, mm -hmm. be a part of that, be there with it, actually actively involved in it, harvest it, distill it and mature it in one season, just one product, one time, and I'll consider you craft. Because then now you're understanding the whole picture of the agriculture and the labor and the distilling arts, right? Now you have some understanding of it. The second thing is, is your product respected, right? And and so there is some questionality, questionability, in my opinion, of, of guys that call themselves craft that are buying in stuff, right? Now, Yes, there's a blending art, and that plays part in that too. But why use the word craft when you don't need to? The art's elevated enough as it is, and it can be explained. You have mm -hmm. great blenders like Nancy Fraley. You don't necessarily need the word craft. You have guys doing cool stuff like Penelope. They don't necessarily need the word craft, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So is your stuff respected? Is it respected by your distilling peers that are also respected? Mm -hmm. And does it get the attention of the big guys? And here's what I'll say. Well, I'm not necessarily a fan of the word craft. Um, and while there have been a lot of shit craft whiskeys, they're getting better because the ones that were bad either got out of the business or they learned what they were doing right. or they hired a home distiller. Oh, yes. Weird. Right. To make it for them. Mm -hmm. um, and I know the craft whiskey is winning to some extent. And the way that I know that is Jim Beam is dropping in a craft distillery. And I love I love Freddie. He's a he's mm -hmm. a great guy. I get along with him great. And I love seeing him do what he's doing. But when Jim Beam drops in a craft distillery, that means they're paying the fuck attention to what's happening. But can, you know? but can they legitimately call that a craft distillery, though? Like, and I, 
I'm not asking. Let me back up. Yeah. I don't think that they can. I mean, at that volume, uh, th there's a different – that becomes a marketing term for me for that type of a dis distiller. But what you're advocating for is like reinforcing and shoring up the foundations of what craft means. Instead of saying it's a dirty word, giving it more teeth and saying like the, yes. there, there are things that make you a craftsperson. And so if you go back to – um, man, I'm I'm sorry. I'm getting some uh, folks that are showing up that aren't supposed to be here. I gotta hide this. That's the wrong thing. Block that user. You know, you know, you're finally doing something well. Whenever uh, bots show up, like I, I feel like I'm yeah. doing something good. Hey, you know, getting like, some getting some Pornhub links going over there. Right? Yeah, like get that affiliate payment really going, going on, on here. <laughs> you know, it, it, when they finally started showing up, it, it just so happens it's whenever you came. So maybe you brought them with you. Um. But anyways, you, it's tough for me to accept them saying that. And you mentioned you mentioned mentioned Nancy Fraley, and I'm glad you did, uh, because going back, you know, I was I was talking about the former boss that I had. Um, he had mentioned, you know, if he ever won Powerball, he was going to farm until all the money was gone. And somebody asked me, he's like, "Hey, what do you, you know, what would you do if you won Powerball?" You know, and this is about two years ago. And I said, first thing I would do is I would buy a distillery, and then I would try to hire Alan Bishop and Nancy Fraley, and I'd ride that shit until the money was gone, or where we were all rich, one or the other. Right. Because I feel like that's like an appropriate merging of a master blender taster and a person who's interested in the the craft. Yeah. From beginning to end. Um, and it would either come out fantastic or you come up with out some like amazing esoteric shit that nobody's interested in besides the people deeply in the industry Absolutely. and all the money would be gone, but it'd be a hell of a ride. Yeah. What would you well, do? I, that could work out those, um, those iron root Republic projects that I would like to work on with the licorice mm -hmm. brothers as well then. So that'd be, that'd be great. Cause I, mm -hmm. I fucking, I love those guys. I love what they're doing. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, that would be great. I've, I've had that conversation before about well, what would I do if I won the, Powerball, and it is to some extent keep doing the same thing I'm doing, but I think it might become fuck the legal industry. I'll just go back to moonshining and pay the goddamn fines. <laughs> you know, just do it. Just, 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 uh, you know, thumbing your what? nose at the, at the business. I'm not doing it for anybody else but me. Mm -hmm. You know, what are you going to do with 5,000 gallons of whiskey? I don't fucking know, but <laughs> <laughs> whatever I want. That's right. what I'm going to do. You I know, have I fuck you money. That's what I have. Yeah, That's <laughs> I have buy a senator money at that point. Yes. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm giving away fucking barrels for people's birthdays. Right. Hey, that's, that's <laughs> fantastic. Um, so back in the fall, my, my family and I, we actually came up to French Lick, visited, <laughs> never been there. I have, and I'll say this, I have a, a predisposed distaste for the state of Indiana. Um, and it has nothing to do with anything. Other than, my mom has six sisters and one brother. Out of those people, inevitably, one person was going to marry somebody from Indiana. <laughs> right. Kentucky and, has the same problem Indiana does. Correct. At some point, you got to go somewhere else because everybody's fucking cousins. I married here. into Tennessee. I made sure that I moved out of state for a marriage. That way, there was yep. no intertwining of family trees. But that guy's sort of a jerk, right? And so you mm -hmm. have this grow up knowing that's what it was. But. And he was actually from near the French Lake area, but we went up there and we, we did the, the, is he from the Jasper. what's that? Is he from Jasper? No, I can't. I could tell you if I thought deeply, I could figure it out, but they actually, I'm going to say the boys are Martin County. That's what I'm going to say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but he, uh, anyways, we came there, visited, we went to the German restaurant in French Lick was super fantastic. Enjoyed the shit out of that. Yeah. Came out of the distillery. I was able to pick up. A kosher bourbon because that's not here in Murray ever, you know. 
right uh, I, I do see some french lick in, in in the area but that's it um super enjoyed it and i in you've talked about the black forest of indiana right and 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 what that is and you like exploring and reviving history um and all of your bottles not all most of the bottles i've seen have some sort of a story uh, icon or whatever mm-hmm. um is there anything you've got in your pocket that you're like someday that's the thing i want to do and, and i'm not like if you've got it it's i'm not going to tell anybody that's fine but mm-hmm. Oh, there's lots of them, man. There's so many stories that have not been told. Um, there's a couple coming up here shortly that aren't as personal to me, but they tie into the owners of, of French Lick. Uh, mm-hmm. So there was a, a town that doesn't exist anymore in Martin County called uh, Henderson Falls. So we're going to be doing a chocolate malt corn whiskey um, based on that. Um, the next one that really kind of applies to me is, is uh, Charles Edward Ballard, who was at one point in time Lee Sinclair's uh, son-in-law. And uh, he sort of took over for Lee Sinclair when Lee Sinclair passed away. And uh, by the time that this all happened, um, Sinclair had basically drawn so much attention to French Lick West Baden uh, with the dome and the the game room, what we now know as a casino, that there ended up being nine hotels and casinos in French Lick. Um, And Charles Edward Ballard ended up owning every single one of them. Uh, none of the casinos were ever legal. Um, Ballard owned clubs up in Michigan, out on the out on the East Coast, down in Florida, down the Caribbean. He owned every circus in the United States, short of Barnum and Bailey. And he would bring the circus workers and the animals back to French Lick every every winter for the winter season. Mm-hmm. Um, he was good friends with a lot of the gangsters. He helped a lot of the Kentucky distillers move their liquor uh, through French Lick during Prohibition because French Lick is sort of equidistance between Cincinnati, Louisville. St. Louis, Indy, mm-hmm. uh, even Chicago and Nashville are, are, you know, railroad towns pretty easily. Um, and Ballard was such a badass legitimately that, so every, every distillery has their fucking Capone story, whatever, but it, the legit Capone <laughs> story that French Lick has is that Ballard owned these two farms outside of town. They're about five, six miles out of town, um, Castle Knoll and Will Stem Ranch. And that's where they raised all the food for the casinos and hotels. Um, so Capone was not allowed this to tell you how much of a badass this guy was Capone was not allowed in the town of French liquor West Baden if he was not with Charles Ballard and Capone never owned anything in French liquor West Baden the dude was friends with Bat fucking Masterson and Bat <laughs> Masterson gave him one of his fucking baby dragon pistols they have it at the museum <laughs> I got to hold the fucking thing Mm-hmm. It was. It was. I wanted to fucking fire it so bad. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't. You didn't try to see if you could squeeze one off real quick, and nobody would know. It was still. It was still free, and I offered Patty, the museum curator. I was like, I've got black powder and caps in the truck. I'll fucking go get them right now. <laughs> you mean you didn't come in with it in your pocket and be like, I should have. We're ready to go. We'll give it a shot. <laughs> right. So yeah, that's um that's the next one. Uh, there are a lot of so. Two things. So obviously, your disdain for, for Indiana, I can understand to some extent. Um, it's it's uh, it's gone mostly now, you know, because he's out of the family. Yeah. We had a fantastic experience. I've, you know, I've never had a bad experience in Indiana, uh-huh. but my my kids absolutely. We did the Will Stem, um, you know, yeah, so animal been, tour or whatever. Yep. My daughter, my oldest daughter, is like super into wolves. So like being able to see a real wolf yes. was like the coolest shit she could ever experience. And we stayed in the cabins there. And, yep. you know, like the fact that there did, was you, no- did you get to see the pot still? No, we didn't get to see the pot still. Yep. 
Yep. But we came in, I it came into the distillery. Um, we, you know, we just had a nice relaxing weekend and it was fantastic because a cell phone, cell phone service was shit, which meant nobody yep. from work. Nobody could get bothered you. And exactly. then the most American thing in the world's right there as well. It's an indoor water park. Yeah. Fuck yeah. yeah. We did all of the things. It was fantastic. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, we'll, we'll be back. You know, my, once she turns 13, she's like, I want to, cause you know, you can get in and do like an in the cage wolf experience if you're yep. 13 or older and she's just 10 right now. She'll turn 11 at the end of this week. She's like, can we go back? I'm like, absolutely. You know, and yep. 13, a 13 year old girl that's into wolves is probably a, sort of a weird thing, but I'm oh, embrace cool. the weird. Let's, let's fucking go. Yeah. You were, you, you were there at Willstem. You were, um, you were within walking distance of a 400 gallon pot. Still it doesn't have a head anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it's literally within 20 feet of the old railroad track. Uh, it probably came out of the wolf distillery in Stamper Creek township. And uh, Ballard would literally, this is how ballsy he was. He'd, he'd roll the train right up to the still. It's not even in a building. <laughs> and they would load the fucking train with liquor and deliver uh-huh. it to his clubs all over the fucking place. Um, a lot of people don't know that's there. It's one of the fat, last few remaining stills from the Southern Indiana distilling complex. But talking about Southern Indiana culture a little bit, though, um, the thing about the six county region, the Black Forest region, every every region of Indiana is kind of its own thing, but you know, if you talk to somebody from Indiana, you say, hey, where are you from? You know, if they're if somebody says I'm from Indiana, they're typically mm-hmm. talking like Columbus North. Right. Because mm-hmm. you say, where are you from? And somebody says Southern Indiana. It's almost its own fucking state, especially anything from, let's say, Perry slash Orange County going east over to Scott County, maybe even Brown County. Brown County is maybe a little more progressive, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um but I, that's one thing I love about the region I'm in and, and the Black Forest in general, the six-county region, uh, which is Washington, Orange, Lawrence, Crawford, Harrison, and Perry. I love the culture here. I love that there's still – most of the people who originally settled here were from the earliest wave of German immigrants into the United States, and they brought really old ways with them and very old superstitions, very old thoughts. They're hard to find nowadays, but they do still persist if you know where to look for them at. Mm-hmm. And there's also uh, – there's a certain darkness that comes along with that too, that I really enjoy. And I like being able to play off of And And to me, I can more than anywhere else, well, not more than anywhere else, but the main place that you can find it available as a tourist is French Lick. That town mm-hmm. has, a, that town does not feel like it belongs in Indiana. Oh, absolutely not. I don't know where it belongs specifically. It just Southern, Southern Georgia. That's where it should be. See, you know, we've—I've spent a deal of time in Savannah. We do, you know, vacations in that area, and it—I don't know. There's, there's some, there's some sort of almost East European vibe to French Lick in itself, yep. at least in in my interpretation. You know, it just—it's yeah. unique, and we we mm-hmm. super super enjoyed it. Like I said, we will absolutely be back. And we were talking about what we're we gonna do for spring break. Are we gonna do anything for next fall break? And the kids are like, we can go back to French Lick and you know I. I've always been there. Let's go experience another thing and another thing and another thing or whatever. But I'm like, Man, I don't know. Maybe we will go back. You know, That's, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a unique environment. Um, so you like to, you like to write these stories that, that kind of go along with it, that creative process. What does that look like? Do you wait until you taste the spirit to match the story or do you make and distill the spirit and put it in the barrel, expecting it to match the, like how, how do you connect the bottle to the story? To the story. It, it kind of depends on what the product is. So like Lee Sinclair um, was named long before there was Lee Sinclair. Um, mm-hmm. That's literally what I called my moonshine 
was Lee Sinclair. So it's basically the same mash bill as the mash bill. A variation upon the mash bill that I came up with when I was 15. Um, And Lee Sinclair, of course, being not from Washington County, but living the majority of his adult life in Washington County and then going to Orange County to, to start up the dome, me being from Washington County, et cetera, being very familiar with Sinclair, the places he grew up at, the friends that he had, the circles he ran in, it made sense. Plus, we're right across from the dome. We're on Sinclair Street. It's in the town that he built. That had to be called Sinclair. It made absolute sense. Um, Maddie Gladden, I knew that I wanted to use the name of um, because the story's too good not to tell. Um, right. I didn't necessarily know what I was going to use it for. And it just so happened to turn out that that high ride bourbon worked because of all the whiskeys we make, it's the biggest and boldest of all of those whiskeys. And so it's going to grab some attention. And so that story needed a platform. That story, a would have made its own platform, even if it was on a shit whiskey, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I wanted it because it was named after a woman to be a fucking great whiskey that was big and bold and challenged what your perceptions of what a high ride bourbon should be. Mm-hmm. And so it fit. Um, Solomon Scott, to some extent, uh, which we've only released as a single barrel so far, that, which is our rye whiskey. It'll come out this year. It'll be uh, bottled and bond, but it'll be five and a half, maybe six years old by the time it comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, we kind of did that because one of the distilleries that Solomon owns was the the Scott and McCoy distillery, and they made rye whiskey there. And it was uh, very similar mash bill to what Solomon Scott is. So in the Ohio Valley, 60% rye throughout Southern Indiana, Southern Ohio, and Northern Kentucky was very, very common. So that fit uh, more so than the stories. So I have a lot of these stories and sometimes I do have products in mind and there's a lot of stories again in the future that I do have built up that I will use for products, mm-hmm. um, including uh, the very first gentleman who figured out how to cheat uh, the gauging tank, who also happened to be the gentleman who came up with the patent for the gauging tank. And they made the mistake of making him an excise man who also owned a distillery. So <laughs> that story's coming. Uh, that was in Patoka, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, not Potoka Lake, but actual Potoka out by Evansville, right. uh, interestingly enough. Um, more so than the stories going to particular products, if I'm going to develop a product, and I've always done this at home, uh, I want it to have a particular feel to it. A particular, a lot of this ties in like supernatural, spirituality, stuff like that for me. All those things are tied together closely. So I'll make a playlist. Um, and alongside that playlist, I'll also have maybe a color in mind. Mm-hmm. And then that that color and that music will remind me of a particular feeling that I had somewhere. And then I build off of that to try to create some of these things. Right. Um, now, it's not as strict as that. It's not like come up with an idea. Here's a rough idea of a match bill. Uh, fuck, it wasn't quite close enough to what I wanted. Usually I'm close enough in the ballpark. I only have to ever make something once or twice before I feel like I'm where I want it to be at. I'm not I'm not so much of a perfectionist that. If I get stuck on something, I'm going to get bored with it. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> at this point, I've distilled so many batches of fucking Lee Sinclair, and I love that whiskey, but You're fuck, I'm tired of distilling Lee Sinclair, you know? Um, See, well, maybe you wouldn't have worked out in the factory after all, because, no. you know, we, we have a small engine plant. We had a small engine plant from Briggs and Stratton here in town, and I worked that for a summer. And, man, that was probably... I worked as a janitor at a university cleaning up just the worst things far better than working in a factory because I couldn't do the competitive behavior or whatever. Um, but I, I enjoy, I always enjoy 
anything that comes with a story. Like I think it enhances the connection and, and you sort of describing your creative process makes it that much better. You know, there are brands out there that are slightly, we'll say more than slightly dishonest about their history and connecting it with the bottle. I think most, most really in tune whiskey consumers kind of go in knowing that some of the story is bullshit and you're not trying to connect the story to the bottle like that you're connected nope. in a different way which is which is fantastic and i, and I absolutely appreciate that no uh, and I, I consider myself uh not sorry to interrupt but, but, but no, no, as much of a historian as i am a distiller so anything yeah. we put on the bottle and i'm not saying that sometimes we won't get stuff wrong history is what it is it gets yeah. updated all the time but i want that story on the bottle to be as legit as what it is and just like you i don't like it when people do that shit there's a brand mm -hmm. here in indiana that has done that uh with a distiller that was from the six county region um, William Dalton is a direct response and shots fired to that particular fucking brand <laughs> because if you're going to tell that story, get tell it right. the fuck right. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, 99 corn and 1% malt is not approximate to what they were fucking making at that distillery and the tax records are accessible for you to figure that the fuck out. Right. Yeah, that, that sounds like a, a situation where they took the story and they created the whiskey to match it as opposed to, to what you're doing, which is super... Super interesting. Um, you know, I've got the Maddie Gladden. I have Sinclair. I have Solomon Scott. I have Kasha. Man, when, when's the Lost River going to be available? Fucking Lost River shit. <laughs> Sorry, you don't have to answer that. I, I, when you agreed to come on, that was the first question that I wrote down. Like, you I have to ask this question just because I've heard your reaction to it elsewhere. That's Kevin Rose has fucking nailed me with that Lost River thing so many times. And so, I, I will tell you this the story of, of what happened here. So Lost River will be out. It'll be very mm -hmm. limited because we didn't make much of it. Because honestly, it's either a seven or an eight grain bourbon. I don't remember. Um, I think it's, it's not, limited to six grain. It, yeah, maybe it is. I can't remember. Man, maybe I'm counting Kasha and Buckwheat as two different grains. It was up there. It was a lot. There's a lot happening. I'll put it that way. It's not that it's a bad whiskey. It's that it's very hard to balance that many grains and, and be able to pick those individual flavors out. And so it never, it wasn't, it, A, it wasn't my idea. It's hard to, it's hard to be passionate about things that aren't my idea. Right. Um, and that's selfish, but that's, I feel like I've, to some extent as a distiller, I fucking earned that at this point. Right. Yeah. So the whiskey is what I have of that whiskey of that bourbon is coming along. It's just going to take a little more time in the barrel. And so what happened was we had a barrel that was pretty good and I was pretty happy with it. And so Liquor King has done so much business with us down in Texas. I was like, all right, they want something unique. They're always looking for something new. They want the next thing that we're doing. We'll give them Lost River. Now, it never occurred to me because I don't fucking think this way that people would be pissed off that I use the local landmark for a whiskey that ended up in Texas Right. And they would be coming to the distillery like pissed that they saw this label online. People who aren't <laughs> even going to drink the fucking whiskey. They just want it because it has fucking Lost River on it. Right. And would be legitimately pissed that they drove to the distillery. Instead of reading the post that said it was only available in Texas, they'd be legitimately pissed that they drove to the distillery to get Lost River and it wasn't fucking there. Right. And so this literally, this came out in Texas on, uh, I think I was off for like, three or four days or something like that. I like took a Friday and a Monday or something. And I had a bunch of shit. I was trying to knock out on the farm and this came out and my phone starts blowing up and it's people fucking messaging me pissed off that they can't get it. 
work is calling me and going, when are we going to put that out in the tasting room? And I just turned my phone off. <laughs> I'm just fucking, fuck you motherfuckers. It's my time off. Leave me alone. So then I started telling Kevin, I was like, you know where you can get Lost River at? You can only fucking get it in fucking Texas and Mississippi because now I'm making sure it never comes out in Indiana. <laughs> I, I I enjoyed the interchange around that one specifically because when it, I, I I don't know if somebody shared it or I saw it from I don't know where it came from but I saw it come across oh cool I wonder if they'll have that you know at the distillery at some point in time because that's the only place I could find the kasha right and it wasn't the only reason I came and it wasn't one of those things where if it wasn't there I'd be like oh well I wasted my time no because yeah. there's innumerable other things to pick up there and I didn't go with a single purpose. And if I had gone with a single person, I would have called ahead of time, been like, "Hey, you guys got this?" I'm like, "No, we don't." Well, and I'm not going to drive four hours up there to get it or whatever. Um, but I was like, "Yeah, I got to ask that question because had, had I known that that was literally going to be like that big of a moment where I could have purposely trolled people, I would have been on top of that shit." But I did, it didn't fucking occur to me like when we did unpretentious and I made up all the bullshit about the secondary market and people were buying into that shit, right? That was that was the most fun I ever fucking had. You know, when I put up is that you unintentionally trolled the entire bourbon world. That's right. how but, but then it backfires because your phone just fucking blows up. <laughs> right. You trolled yourself at this mm-hmm. point, you know. Where can I get it, Texas? Where can I get yeah. it, Texas? And I'm I'm continuously surprised by some of these things though, too. So like the the um you know, some of the one off stuff we've done at the distillery. So the the unpretentious was the first one and that went fucking crazy and then the right way which was the rye finished in uh absinthe barrel and that mm-hmm. went really well we still got quite a bit of that because we did three or four barrels of it um and then we did uh no we don't we don't have any of that i'm sorry that sold really quick the uh absinthe finished in, in uh, new american oak is still some there which absinthe slow seller anyways right um but like the complexity the the apple brandy and fucking tequila barrel which is cool that's stuff that excites me you know as an apple brandy distilled as uh, basically as like a white spirit no heads, no tails, full on into a used tequila barrel, mat- matured 100% for three years in tequila barrel. I bottled it at 145.1, which is fucking, somebody's making babies that they don't want. That's what's happening at 145.1, right? And I thought, so what happened was NES group picked that and they wanted it that proof, but they only wanted half the barrel. And I was like, well, fuck it. We'll put the other part out in the tasting room and it'll probably, you know, we'll sell a bottle or two here and there. Mm-hmm. Gone in fucking two days. And I'm like, <laughs> who fucking knew that there was a market for fucking hazmat apple brandy? I didn't know that that existed. Hazmat apple brandy that tastes like sort of like tequila. Is yeah. that what we're getting at? That's, yep. you know, that's <sighs> bourbon and whiskey specifically is getting like super crowded. At least it feels yep. like it's, everybody's there. And I think we're all asking the question. I know um, Bourbon Lens joined, and I know we've had that conversation. He and I have had that conversation. I don't know if it's Scott or Jake. It could be either one of them. What's next? Like, what's the next big spirit in North America, do you think? Is is everybody going to shift to, like, brandy or rum? Is it agave? Is it cognac or armagnac? Is it American single malt? Or is it going to be everybody's going to go back to fucking vodka? So I think the next thing that is is logical is American single malt. You're already seeing that. I think that rye also still has a lot of room to grow. And a lot of bourbon drinkers will say that they don't like rye. But the truth is they don't like MGP 95.5, right? They don't even know. They, they've had one rye because I, I, I'm, I'm guilty of this, 100% guilty of this. I had a rye six or seven years ago, and I'm like, eh, I don't really like rye because it was yep. one that was very licorice forward. 
Yep. I don't like licorice. You know, the, the closest yeah. I can get to licorice is like whorehound candy. Yep. And I'm okay with that, you know, because it's like a place between root beer and licorice. And I'm like, okay, whorehound's fine. But I didn't like that particular one. And then I made it a point last January. I was like, all right, I'm going to try a different rye every day for like 30 days. But uh, I like a lot of rye. I just didn't like the one that I had. And I formed my whole opinion on it. I think that's what most bourbon drinkers are doing. Yeah. Yeah, I think most 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 rye people again are familiar with MGP ninety five five or most people who've mm-hmm. tried rye don't like it MGP ninety five five or Sazerac right that's their experience and there's there's a lot more out there but it's just now growing you know ours is at sixty percent rye which is different than Kentucky and MGP right um I, so I is, think there's a lot that of intentional is that so you can differentiate so you don't get lumped in with MGP and get mistaken for it that was a lot of it and then the other part of it was I got invited to go to um the mount vernon george washington distillery for a week several years ago and uh, uh it's it's same proportion mash bill is what they do at mount vernon but we switch out a few different things as far as the malt the yeast etc so i can't it's not george washington's rye obviously it's its mm-hmm. own separate entity um, but the other reason is because that 60 percent rye mash bill again that's what was popular in the ohio valley in the early 1800s uh ironically aged in hickory wood of all things which right. is kind of interesting um so there's a lot of levity left in rye. Single malt is is got a lot of room to grow, and I think in four or five years, I mean, we're already talking about single malt now. Everybody keeps bringing it up, and I hope it doesn't fall into the rum thing where, you know, everybody brings it up, but it never really catches on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think single malt has a lot more levity because, especially with these different roasted malts, different maltsters that are out there, um, the different types of malt, and you can malt any grain. I mean, a single malt whiskey in the United States could be 100% malted corn. Right. right. And it, until, it, until TTV does something. Yeah. Says it has yeah. to be something else. That's absolutely. That's and, and that may be coming. Like, I know they've been teasing that for yep. three months now. And I think it was supposed to be December when they made a decision. They still haven't made one. But so, so is, is Alan Bishop going to make a single malt rye or uh, American single malt? So there's already a few single malts in the warehouse. Not much. We only do uh, a batch or two here and there. Um, I have, I have some projects up my sleeve that involve let's say single malts and also much higher malt proportions in general and whiskeys um that i'm super excited about that i I can't quite talk about just yet but they they will people will know when they know and it'll be in my opinion a pretty a pretty big deal i think um just give me some general vague timeline so that way i can go ahead and plan my time off and get my cabin and make sure that we're up in the french lake area so we can pick it up let's let's say that that same timeline where um single malt becomes a bigger part of the conversation that that three to four year range is is where that'll be at um i think that apple brandy has a lot of levity now it's never going to be huge because there's not enough apples to do anything with right and there's a lot of really really shitty apple brandy in the united states right now unfortunately Mm. um but I do think that well-made apple brandy, uh, you know, apple brandy is the sexier older sister of bourbon. It's not a hard jump for a bourbon drinker to get into apple brandy and like what they are tasting. Um, if it's made right and it's made a little heavier, uh, a little bolder in style, like what we do with our Hoosier apple brandy. But I really think where things are going is sort of back to that pre-industrialization uh, sort of thing. So now you're getting enough craft distilleries that you can have regional craft distilleries that actually play into the local food shed, the local watershed, use local ingredients, use local yeast. Every distillery in the United States, I don't give a shit if you're in Alaska. There are corn varieties that will grow in Alaska. If you are going to make a whiskey with corn in in the United States, you should have your own corn variety. There are 
literally thousands of them. Every distillery should have their own. Every distillery should have their own yeast variety. I think people's palates are maturing. They're coming around to interesting, fun, new things and new ideas. So I think where the real market for craft distilling is, in my opinion, is not so much single categories, but distilleries that can turn on a dime, do a ton of fucking different things, hit categories that you've never heard of that existed back before Prohibition, such as a split brandy. So split brandies were literally half grain, half brandy. So you'd have peach and wheat, you'd have rye and apple, uh, that sort of thing. Um, botanical spirits, I think, still have a lot of room and a lot of levity out there. Um, very old styles of whiskey, definitely. Uh, there's And there's some interesting stuff there I can't talk about just quite yet because I want everybody to know about those things. Um, I will tell you what I'm drinking right now. It's homemade, and I can't say who made it, but it is an apple brandy that has uh, elements of apple smoke as well as peat smoke. So it's a smoked apple brandy, which is so apple smoke as in like uh, um, like apple wood smoked. Yep. Okay. Yep. I don't I don't know that there's another way to like burn an apple, but I figured if there was, uh, Alan Bishop figures out how to. Yeah. Yeah, man. We've been we've been calling this uh, Le Frog. So you know (laughs) it's Le Frog, but it's it's just Frenchy enough. You have to throw frog in there. Right. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so so for for an, an apple brandy novice, is an aged apple brandy the way to go, or is just just clear apple brandy? Like, where do you start with apple brandy? Um, it really depends. I I think for for bourbon people, definitely an aged apple brandy is the way to go. Um, Laird's has got some good stuff. If you're going to buy anything from Laird's, stay away from, in my opinion, the Applejack. And I, I respect the hell out of Laird's. I love them, but just as far as mm-hmm. quality goes. I'd go for their older expressions. They're pretty good. Hubert Robin. Yeah. Hubert Robin. um, Any of their single varietal apple brandies, they're expensive, Mm -hmm. but they are fucking top notch. Excellent. Um, Calvados is a good place to start and you can get some good Calvados for decent prices. Um, We obviously have our two year old, uh, old Clifty Hoosier apple brandy, and we're about to roll out with this was supposed to be out back in the fall and we couldn't get bottles. And uh, we also couldn't get label approval at the time for whatever reason. But we have a uh, four-year-old bottled and bond apple brandy that we're going to be rolling out this year that was in uh, both new oak barrels and uh, 64-gallon uh, hogshead barrels. So once you use bourbon barrel staves on the side, new American oak on the ends. Um, I'm actually getting ready to drop some apple brandy into, ironically, some used Lafroyd casks. So that's going to be fun, you know. <laughs> I'm on this this apple and smoke thing because I don't know why I just because that, it makes sense. I mean, right. like, it you, just seems like it should work. You know, any fan of barbecue is like, okay, I see how this works. Yep, right. Like that's yep. that's exactly where you're at because you know how many barbecue sauces have like applesauce as a base, and right. you're talking about smoking it over any type of wood at any point in time. Like, I'm I, I I'm here for it. You know, and yes, now, I, and I'll I'll say one more thing about apple brandy too, real quick. Um, when you do get, when you do try apple brandies, mm-hmm. give them a little levity. Try two or three of them because, again, there's a lot of bad apple brandy out there. There's there's some good producers too, obviously, like we just talked about. Um, but a lot of people make one of two mistakes with apple brandy. They either there's more heads on uh, brandy run in general, um, mm-hmm. and those heads in apple brandy can be very deceiving. So they can come off as almost like red raspberry, and a lot of people make the mistake of leaving way too much of them in there. Um, 
The other thing that, that tends to happen is they tend to run a little too far into the tails with apple brandy, um, and they don't pick up on the vegetative thing. Uh, so, so just bear in mind, you may have to try two or three of them before you, mm-hmm. uh, before you find a good one. Don't pay more than a hundred dollars for an apple brandy. I say this about bourbon too. Don't mm-hmm. pay more than a hundred fucking dollars for a bottle guys. This is, this is supposed to be blue collar stuff. I think, I think at the end of the day, the only way I'm spending more than a hundred dollars on a bottle of bourbon, at least right now is if it's a dusty, if it's something from the seventies, eighties, I'll consider it because at that point in time, we're yep. looking at an antiquity that somebody has saved over time that could end up tasting like a shoe or it could be um, sort of a different spirit because, you know, you, like I've, I've been into woodworking in my life and I know that the wood that was available to them when they were aging that was older growth wood with different ring patterns and different densities. And so the way the, the, the whiskey interacts is significantly different than what you might get now. Um, so I can see value there, but, why spend more than a hundred dollars when there's tons of fantastic whiskey that's below a hundred dollars? Well, I got, I got something that, that will, it, it's a proposed project that I'm doing playing around with bench scale stuff on rapid aging. This won't be rapid age by the time I actually mm-hmm. do the thing, but I'm just playing. So you being a, a woodworker, um, what if I told you that that three to four year time frame we just talked about will include the following. Um, a whiskey and or an apple brandy aged in barrels where either at the very least the heads will be made of this and potentially the barrels if they can make staves out of it. Nobody knows for sure yet because nobody's done this. But I have access to oak logs from Missouri, um, virgin oak that's 170 years old. You're going to have something drastically different than what most people can do. At least from my understanding, my very limited understanding, you know, like Buffalo Trace went on that really long uh, experiment with the antique, not the antique collection, the Buffalo Trace um, single oak project where they selected different trees and they did different ring patterns and they did all kinds of different stuff. And, you know, they found there's difference and whether it's the single barrel part or the the wood sort of is is left to be um, kind of guessed at. But yeah. from a woodworking perspective and understanding how wood work, how, how wood behaves based off of its age, um, you know, if, if someone cuts a 180 year old tree down and they, you know, sawmill it into lumber, it's less likely to cup because that grain pattern is different, you know, because it's going to lose moisture at a different rate. It's not going to curl yeah. up nearly as quickly because it's not young. It wasn't grown. Now, this is, this is, check this out. This is the cool part. So this is 170 year old. It was cut 170 years ago. Oh, it's from a fucking log cabin. Literally. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, I said virgin oak. I mean, like it was virgin oak back right. there. Yeah, right. no, I didn't know if like somebody dove deep back nope. into the woods and found nope. a hundred and eighty year old tree and they were cutting it down. Yeah, so that's. So when is this for sale? <laughs> that, well, we'll see, we got to see what the Coopers can do with it too. Because right. if, if like, they can, I knew that I had them on the hook for this Zach Cooperage because uh, you know there's three you know father, son, grandfather all involved, and I usually call and talk to the to the, the son. And uh, as soon as I said hundred and seventy year old oak from a log cabin in Missouri all three of them were on the phone, <laughs> right? right? They're like, we don't know what we can do with it, but we're willing to give see. it a hell of a shot. Absolutely. Yep. And, you know, and, and I, I can only imagine when they go to start cutting that tree up, they've got to be super nervous, right? Oh, yeah. Because there's only one shot at this. It's mm-hmm. like, 
when you put in a kitchen countertop and you're going to go cut the sinkhole, you can only cut one sinkhole. And once it's there, if you screw it up to the left or the right, it is what it is. That's that's where they're at with that tree. But yeah. uh, with that log specifically, you I'm might be able to find another old tree, uh, old log. Ca- uh, sourcing that particular material. Yeah, there's not a lot of that out there. No, there's not. <laughs> What's crazy about it is doing these bench tests and, and uh, uh, getting the wood in from the guy. Um, when you cut this stuff, oh, of course, it's weather checked on the outside. The inside of it's pristine. There's no insect damage. There's no nothing. It smells gorgeous. Uh, just hitting it with a with a map gas torch to do some light toasting and some char on some little pieces. Just to, again, rapid aging, just to get an idea of what the aromatics would be off of it. Um, you could still see the lignin draw up. There was actually still some wood sugar in there. It actually boiled a little sugar out of the end of it. And I was like, man, <laughs> we have to, even if this turns out to be shit, I have to know. I have well, to know. I mean, you got to see it through to the end. I mean, you mentioned earlier that, you know, your OCD about stuff. Mm-hmm. What you're really describing to me is a scientific process. Like you, you've got to go all the way to the end of the experiment to see what comes out the yep. other end. And it could be complete crap or it could be one of the most amazing things. And you may end up with that barrel of whiskey that's worth millions because nobody can recreate it you know yeah that's that's so that's the thing whenever i say hey is there any project that you're working on that would be super interesting in the future i don't have to ask that question now because you just gave it to me yeah yeah i figured that one that one's easier to throw out there because it's a little i'm I'm protective about a lot of things because i've seen I've seen people take my ideas and run with them and it, and I don't mind to share things with people, but sometimes when they, they take it and then they claim it pisses me off. That one's a little easier to talk about because I don't see anybody else making the phone call tomorrow, like calling people like, you know where there's a 170 year old log cabin at that I can. Right. Yeah. yeah and and somebody may hear that and I can absolutely see, you know, somebody finding an old distilling site and be like, Oh, well we found a cabin on an old distilling site and right. we're going to try. And that's, that's an interesting story in and of itself, but, uh, lucky for you, only about 17 people watch this. So the odds of this getting to someone to try to steal yep. the idea, pretty limited. You don't have to now, worry about that. Here. Here's a, here's a fun little part of that story too, though. I, I'll add a complication to those who would like to, uh, who would like to also replicate this. And this was not only my idea. I had a friend and he, he's going to get all the credit in the world when this comes out, who, who's getting me the logs and did the work and the whole thing. Um, this ties into the spirituality of the whole thing with distillation too and alchemy. So again, those things are all related to me. Um, find a 170 year old log cabin from, from the Ozarks uh, that also had a murder happen in it. Oh. And then get back to me. <laughs> <laughs> what you talking about like a murder that happened in it? Years and years ago, yeah, or back in the 1800s. Yeah, because like, cause like you yep. could just find that cabin and then you can go get somebody murdered, and, th- and now you fulfill right. the whole story here. But that's just a lot of dedication. That it, it really is. There's that. That's um. There's dark arts, and then there's just being an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's dark arts, and then there's just being a murderer. That's all yeah. that is. It's like you know, yeah. there, there's discovering the history, and then there's just you know be, right. being a creep. I used to, I haven't said this in a long time, but I used to say that uh, distilling is uh, it's sixty percent hard science. All the shit that you can't argue with, you can turn it upside down, do it backwards. As long as you don't poison anybody, you make good product, you've done your job. It's thirty uh, percent dark arts, and then it's ten percent intuition. Uh, the ten percent is the ten percent keeps you from blowing yourself up, and the thirty percent dark arts is all the bullshit marketing that happens in between. Mm-hmm. You just added five percent more to that, which is <laughs> now distilling is turning it up to eleven. <laughs> hey, all right, but there, I would assume, uh, given the competitive nature of many marketplaces, there's people out there that oh, are probably yeah, willing are. to take it to that level, you know? Oh, man, there really are. Uh, yeah. I've, 
I've, it, I've seen it happen so many times and, and I don't, again, I don't mind to help people. And I, I used to help everybody, Every, mm-hmm. anybody would call me, I would help them and that, whatever that I could, me. that doesn't surprise me at all. But I have, I have learned my fucking lesson on that, that deal. And I don't, I, there's still some guys that I'll help, especially home distillers and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I'm a little more careful on the commercial side of things. And uh, I've gotten a lot more comfortable with saying, what are you going to fucking pay me? Right. <laughs> you know, your time and your experience is worth something. And that's one of the things that specifically, or at least I've seen from people that are either entrepreneurs or they come from a home distilling or a home brewing background. They don't value their own time significantly enough nope. because they come from a cooperative nature. And there's nothing wrong with saying, I have a skill set and it is worth something. And, yep. and so you, you should pay me. Um, so well, then in this world too, you see this, this goes back to that home distiller thing. One of the things that I, that I absolutely hate about this industry is seeing the number of distillers who are great distillers, make great product and they're great faces for their company. And then they get fucked because they don't own anything. Yep. Right. Or, or people, can't manage the company because they don't know what they're doing or they're lazy or they don't care and they don't cut these people in uh, you know what, what would be better give give these people whatever menial raise that you're going to give them or give them a little piece of the company so they actually feel like they have something and some involvement in it and that that happens a lot yeah i mean unless you're a part of the original we built this from nothing Yep. it's tough to get a piece of that. And that's, you know, like the last company that I used to work for, they were an entrepreneurial startup and it was the two owners, but no one else got a piece of that. And so when they sold the company, they got in that, that's fine. Cause they're the ones that put their lives, their livelihoods, their farms on the line for it. I get that. But when you transition to that, you don't get the same degree of connection with the work, you know, like it, you could give somebody a raise that could equal what piece of the business you're going to give them. But if you give them a piece of the business, now they're tied to that work more. So, I mean, like your blood, sweat and tears are going into what you make, yeah. but if you have ownership in it, it's even more so it's, it makes those, I got to work 80 hours this week, feel a little softer yeah. when you have skin in the game. Absolutely. Well, and then the other side of that too, is a lot of times these, these companies, they either don't understand the art of distillation. They don't understand anything about the business. Um, maybe they don't hire the positions that they need to hire. And obviously when you start off, it's hard to do that, but um, you know, you can also be a little lazy about things. And the problem with, with being small is uh, uh, Joe Heron used to say this a lot while I worked at Copper and Kings, and even though Joe and I didn't get along on a personal basis very well, we get along fine now when I work for him, it wasn't mm-hmm. fucking happening, but he had, there were all kinds of Joeisms he'd say all the time. So uh, one of them was about, about playing soccer, right? So you either have big, slow guys or small, fast guys. But you don't have any small, slow guys, right? Because they're just going to get fucking destroyed. Right. Um, and the distilleries that are going to go out of business, you can have great project, you can have great uh, products and great stories. If you don't have good marketing and you're not fast about what you do, you're going right. to fucking go out of business one way or the other. You're not going to make it. It's just not going to happen, period. Um, one of the other things that Joe said that stuck with me, probably gave me a complex, honestly, was... Um, <laughs> procrastination is like masturbation. They both feel good at the time, but you're really just fucking yourself. Right. That's the greatest. And you sort of, and you sort of feel shamed afterwards, right? Yes, absolutely. Or, uh, treading water is the same as drowning. You're just fucking doing it slower. Right. Yeah. You're, you're being so. less efficient at the drowning. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I think I only have, I only have, uh, let's look, maybe one question left. 
All right. I only have one question left, but we can talk for however long you want to. Yeah, sure. But also, no, we've been running for an hour and a half, and I don't. I want to be aware of your time and not take. Yeah, man, I need to watch fucking Moonshiner so I can get my blood pressure up over whatever stupid <laughs> thing they're doing on there this week. <laughs> okay, so you may appreciate this. Uh, last night, I caught myself. We don't have cable TV here at the house. We we haven't. My children have never known what that is. That's awesome. It's not. It, it's not overt like we're not uh you know anti whatever we, yeah. we have an apple tv we have youtube tv we have you know disney plus all that shit so we can see you know sophia and whatever that the princess is mm-hmm. but i was sitting sitting on the couch last night and you know i trust the youtube algorithm to give me what i'm going to watch because i watch enough things that it's probably going to be all right you know whether it's you know just some random stuff but last night it was a pbs um, episode of someone opening up a um, time capsule. It was like a, a people in an office, like that's they were like, you know, forensic archaeologists or something. They're opening a time capsule, and I, my wife and I both sat there and literally just screamed at the TV on how they should be opening this copper box, like we knew what the fuck we were doing. Right. Yours is a little different because you do know what you're doing when it comes to distilling, but both of our blood pressure was through there. Finally, she got it left room. She's like, I. I don't need this stress in my life. I don't know anything about archaeology, but I know how they're cutting apart that copper box is wrong and mm-hmm. stupid, and I can't deal with this anymore. And so, um, so this this one maybe a softball, um, something that most bourbon fiends or whiskey fiends specifically obsess about that just really doesn't fucking matter. Ooh, man, I. Uh- Okay, I'll give and you a couple. bunch of them. So that that, that I, I know you're probably not like having difficulty coming up with as one. It's like narrowing down all of them to one. Yes. So okay, I'm I, I have two that I have to do. So one you is can give me as many as you want to. I just threw out one so that way you don't yeah. have to give all one of them. is a quality issue, and that's uh, the age thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a difference between age and maturity, right? Right. Um, and if you listen to a true distiller, and I still slip into it sometimes, but you listen to somebody, what I would consider a true distiller who's into the art, they don't say I age whiskey. They say I mature whiskey because there's a fucking difference, right? And that we're getting over that at this this point now. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're stupid and you stand in line for fucking hours for a fucking bottle taste, God damn, I wish one time I could get you fucking people on one product to come to my fucking distillery in the middle of fucking nowhere and stand in a fucking line for two or three days. Cause I swear to you, I would come and I would just troll the fuck out of all of you. <laughs> I, I would come in on my day off to fuck with you. Cause I mm-hmm. think it's fucking stupid. Um, the one that, that I have a hard time reconciling and I don't understand. I've never understood. It's not as it, it, it can be, it's not as bad at the distillery as it was at the distillery at Copper and Kings. Cause obviously more people come through there. Um, but it certainly happens at events and it happens on Facebook and it happens on social media a lot. There's a, there's a, a weird obsession with who makes your whiskey right now. Mm-hmm. Granted, there should be some of that because you want to know that they're putting the time and the effort, et cetera, into this. Right. But there's almost this celebrity culture that's grown up around the whiskey distilling industry, yep. which I find very fucking strange. Um, my dad built fucking furniture for 37 years. He fucking, he worked on the custom side of Kimball's and Borden. He built furniture for the white house, for the fucking president, for Congress, etc. Not once did anybody ever come ask him for a fucking autograph. I mean, that would be mm-hmm. like the equivalent of him sticking some chewed up gum underneath the fucking desk. You know, there's my fucking Mark. You know what I mean? Right. Right. And, and I don't mind this, to do, to do that kind of thing, 
But there is also this weird, like, and I guess because it, it is within the circles of, of, of people who are really into this, it is a little bit of a sort of pseudo celebrity thing where it's almost like people start to demand your time and they start to expect that you will take time out of your day yep. to deal with them. And they want you to, they want you to deal with them in such a way that you guys have been friends since the beginning, fuck a time, even if you don't know each other. Um, and just like everything else in the world, if you have a difference of opinion of, uh, with them, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if I post something on Facebook that's controversial, they're going to be the first motherfuckers that jump on there and say some shit. Right. right. Like, how could you say this thing yeah. that I like? I've, I've somehow like like I've smacked it. Like I was like I've smacked them in the fucking face, and you mm-hmm. know, I've sullied their fucking existence and our friendship. And how could you? We've known each other for two months. Yeah. You know, um, I don't like that at all, and and that's why there are people that. I've made friends in the industry and I've got a lot of friends in the industry and I love all of them. And I appreciate all the people who like our whiskey. Mm-hmm. I absolutely fucking do. I couldn't make a living doing this if they didn't support it. Right. Why do you fucking care who makes your fucking whiskey? Why do you think that you have to be fucking close fucking friends with them? Why do you think that they're any different than you are? I wake up every morning and I shit in a pot of clean drinking water. Like everybody else does. Listen, I'm sitting here right now with like a knee that looks like a softball. I don't know what I did. It's possibly a sex injury. It could be. I don't know. Right. Right. I'm a normal fucking dude. I sneezed on my way to work one time, pulled a muscle in my neck and couldn't turn my head to the left. I struggled just like you fucking people do. Right. Pulled my hamstring in this office chair yeah. about six months ago. I understand but, what you're saying. Like I said, I, 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 I fucking, I'm uniquely qualified for two things. If I wasn't making whiskey, I'd be digging mm-hmm. fucking ditches. But, and mm-hmm. so that celebrity culture thing, I don't understand that. And I'm guilty of it too. Like I like it when, when music celebrities get a bottle of art whiskey, but I look at that a little bit differently. I look at that as like, Oh, cool. They made art that I enjoyed for years. And one of them has now tried something that I've made and said something about it. It's cool. It's like returning the favor. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. You feel like you're a part of it. I I think I, I try to be aware of that perception myself. Not, not that I have that, but whenever I deal with people that, that do have that, you know, modern and you don't strike me that way at all you fucking laid back and cool and you asked fucking great questions that were were fun to answer there was no awkwardness there was no weirdness and you know what you didn't do the whole time that i fucking love and this is the people that i become friends with this is how they are you didn't name drop one fucking time about any other fucking distiller the whole time that we were (laughs) luckily i don't have any other distillers that i've talked to but i would i would generally i did well i I take that back i said todd leopold at the beginning but that was literally just me saying like those are my favorite episodes of the distillers talk and that doesn't that doesn't count either like leopold leopold doesn't count as name dropping he he i guess he could now to some extent but because because i know that todd is a normal person and a good person i don't i don't consider like somebody mentioned that like it could have been like todd would be popular if he were a school teacher. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Personality. And absolutely. He's on my list of people that I want to talk to, but right. m- modern consumers, they want to have a deeper connection with the things that they consume. And, and, yep. and it's because we have that information available to us, you know, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, hell, 20 years ago, we didn't have the ability to get all the information about everything at the drop of a hat. You know, we could get some things, but not, not a ton but there's this obsession yeah. with it. But then there's also comes that celebrity factor. And, you know, it's like, uh, you, you know, Jack uh, Hood Sommelier. Oh, fuck. Yeah. 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 
So I, I love Jack, but you know, mm-hmm. I, I only knew him from Instagram and I was, you know, six months ago, I was going to be in Omaha for work. And I was like, Hey, what are some whiskey bars I should hit up? Like, where should I go? And he's like, no, you're not going anywhere. Come see me. And I'm like, I'm not trying like, this is where you live. This is your family. I don't want to be that person. Yeah. But he got a good vibe from you and he invited you and that's cool. Yeah. And so I went over and absolutely had a fucking blast. Yep. You know, I didn't take a single picture. I didn't do like I took, well, I took, I took pictures for myself because I got to try some scotch that I'm never going to fucking see ever. You know, like yeah. it was it was a great time and I enjoyed the time that I had got to hang out with him and his brother and, um, you know, meet his now fiance, I guess. Um, but fantastic. But like while while I was at the Kentucky Bourbon Festival, you see different people. And, you know, people are like, oh, I, you know, I, let me get your autograph. Let me do this. Let me do that. And I want to be like, I appreciate what you're doing. I stopped by the Neely family. I'm like, I really like what you guys are doing. Yeah. But I'm also not trying to be like, hey, you owe me something. All you owe me is what's in this bottle that you produced that I paid for. And that's it. That's that's the end of the story. Everything yep. after that is just icing on the cake. You know, my other favorite one is, and this didn't start happening until last year. Of course, we, we started to get some success. and um. You know, I and I, I came to Spirits of French Lick with a lot of, of connections I met through Copper and Kings. And, and I can honestly say we have never paid for any reviews. We've never paid for any of that kind. We've paid to be in competitions and stuff, obviously, which everybody does. But we've never. You have to. There's not there's, there's not a way to do it otherwise. Yeah. But everything else has been organic. Whatever anybody has said about us has been organic. And mm-hmm. uh, so the Minic thing comes up a lot because obviously Minnick has, has been pretty big on us and it's right. always like it always starts innocently enough like it, a question will come up about Minnick and then maybe somebody will roll their eyes or maybe somebody will make a fucking McKenna joke or whatever mm-hmm. and then it's then it's like because they know that he gave us some gas right and he got and 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 by all means I'm not the right person to ask that question anyways because and Fred will tell you this <laughs> he and I when we first met fucking oil and water there was no at none right mm-hmm. and so and fred has always been incredibly honest about everything that he's ever tasted of ours yeah. um he's, he's there's things that he's <clears throat> been like yeah i mean maddie gladden he tasted it on a show and i think we, what he literally said about was that's a hot tamale right mm-hmm. <laughs> okay what sure right and i appreciate that because it's not it's not his thing but there's always this like once that conversation starts the past two years, it becomes so uh what's the uh what's the inside baseball on Fred Minnick? Right? Like like they think that I'm I like that I've paid Fred or that the company's right. paid Fred or that me and Fred are like and we do sometimes we do talk. We become we've become pretty good friends, honestly. Right. I, I actually I like Fred a lot. I think mm-hmm. he's actually a good guy. But they, they seem to think that it's like either we paid them or you're going to go hang out with them this weekend, you know? Right. And like he either did it as a favor or as yeah. as, a, as somebody paid you and not giving you the, the yep. legitimate credit that you deserve for making. And that's the insulting with. part of it, right? It's right, not only absolutely. that you're, you're just presuming shit about Fred to begin with, but now you have implied that my whiskey wasn't worthy of what the he only way it would happen is if you gave him money or you were his friend, like that's the only right. way it's going to work. And that, yeah, it, that is, that that's super insulting. And you know, I, the way I've always looked at it, because you know, th- this is a thing that I do for fun. I, I enjoy doing this. I enjoy having the conversations, researching, digging on stuff, going, experiencing things. 
you cannot, I don't think in today's society, I don't think you can build quite the following like Fred has and be or, and not be above board. I, I think you have to be because yeah. at some someone is going to rat you out on a long enough timeline if you're that person. Yeah. It will come out because, you know, hell, we all got to see Pam and Tommy Lee have sex, right? Right. That was something that was done in privacy. And that was 20 some odd years ago. If you're taking money, it's eventually going to sneak out and it you're going to be ruined at that point. It would be legitimately the equivalent of, and Fred obviously has a much larger following than I will ever have. Mm-hmm. It would literally be the equivalent of me trying to scrub my social media presence and running for political office. <laughs> you know? Right. Well, I mean, I think you don't have to scrub anything. I think that if you've seen anything about the political climate, anything's a possibility Absolutely. right now, right? Like yeah. everything is fair game. Um, but you're you're not wrong. And that's that's what I'm getting like that really just sounds like a lot of sour grapes, just people being like, you know, I wished I was at that level where someone would send me whiskey for free so I could tell you whether it's good or not. Or right. you know, someone would pay me for my opinion. I don't want anybody to pay me for, for my opinion ever because. And I've had it, I've had it happen with distillers before too. Now, now there's two different ways this happens. And, and the one way I don't mind, like a friend that's a distiller is like, Hey man, we've tried sending our whiskey to Fred and like, we're not getting a response. Mm-hmm. how did you know how did you get the attention that you did and i'm like listen guys I, there's no secret to it and i told my fr- the ones that i'm friends with that i and they're pure-hearted about this they don't mean any they're not asking me to do them a favor they're not asking me to push it or anything i'm like give him time because that's the thing about him like all the shit that he's said about us he gave me no fucking warning the right. only warning he might give me is be like 10 minutes before the show like might want to yeah you might want to tune in tonight and then it's not followed by anything positive or negative, which keeps right. me on the fucking edge, like trying to not have a fucking heart attack while I'm watching <laughs> this shit. Right. But then mm-hmm. the other side is then you get the guys that are like, again, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. How do you get your stuff to Fred? Right. Don't make shit. There you go. Not to Fred and Fred's palette's not for everybody, obviously. Mm-hmm. Right. But if you're going to be that way and that's what you're implying is, Hey, there's gotta be a little secret to this yeah. or, um, the number of distillers, this falls in the same sort of category. The number of distillers that will call and then they'll say something that they're doing, that they're thinking about doing or they've done to their product that's kind of shady. And then it's implied like, oh, everybody does this. Mm-hmm. No, not everybody fucking does. <laughs> that's a that's a pretty broad assumption to be to, to be made at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, and I assume there's probably like a third category of people that are legitimately your friends that are going to be like, Oh, so how much did you pay him just to fuck with you? Like that's got to yeah. be a group of people. Fuck yeah, like, it's constant. And those are the ones that I want to be friends with. Right, right. Those yeah. are the ones I enjoy, right? Because yeah. it keeps me they immediately see it and they're immediately the, the Alan Bishop hotline. Yeah. They're like, hey, how much did you pay him? Oh, dude. Who there's, did you have to kiss? You know, there's three. I have three text message groups on on uh, on Facebook and it's just full of assholes. It's just yeah. full of the biggest assholes in the industry and I fucking love them. That's the uh, best because you're going to get a genuine response. They're going to yep. give you that, but then they're also going to know like, they they appreciate it. I I, yeah. I I have a similar group of folks, um, just in my personal life that it's it's the same way. Yeah, I made the mistake one time on Distillers Talk of calling a lighthouse a light tower, and I don't. I've never <laughs> lived that fucking down to this fucking day. There's one of those three groups. So one is called the assholes. Uh-huh. Uh One is called Shocker Deluxe, <laughs> and then the other one. Is called Light Tower Tour Group. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
um, you kind of see where this is going, but so this, this brings up something interesting. Um, and this might be a good, a good place to close out potentially here. And, and anytime you'd like me to come on, I'll be glad to come on as well. Um, and we'll send you some products next time too. Let you, like, we'll give you some little samples of some, of some cool stuff that's not out yet. And maybe we can do a little tasting or something. Um, but you mentioned, uh, Bo Cumberland's channel on YouTube earlier. And, and you guys have probably seen that there's a, a, a trailer out for something called the Allen Bishop experience. I think it's implied the Allen fucking Bishop experience. And uh, absolutely. Yes. No, it, it, I, that is the entire reason I am subscribed to that channel. Now I just saw it come through and I'm like, nice. I appreciate it. And then I watched everything else he had. And I'm like, there we go. Let's go. He's got great stuff. Bo's yeah. a fantastic filmmaker. And the Maddie Gladden yeah. videos are on there. The Lee Sinclair videos are on there too. Um, but this documentary originally started out as Bo, just like all the documentaries he does, wanting to kind of document my my distilling efforts and all that stuff. And and me being the way that I am, I'm like, you know, Bo is very kind of he he's very structured of like, mm-hmm. what how would you like to present this? What would you like to happen? Blah blah. blah. And I, you know, my response to that was, fuck that, Bo make the movie that you want to make right? right and i literally made it as difficult on bo as what i possibly fucking could like i could not have i could not have made this experience any more difficult than what it is for bo because what i wanted well all i really wanted him to capture was sort of the the more overall belief system and, and point of view that i have and the idea of, of being a little bit of, of a jester in the whiskey industry mm-hmm. but more importantly than that was filming he filmed once at the distillery and then he filmed twice um, at our farm. And both times he filmed at the farm, we invited all those groups of assholes. And, that, and, and some of them couldn't make it, unfortunately, because right. they lived too far away. But what I wanted was this representation of this is what whiskey or distilling community really looks like. And this right. is what it's about. Like people that like, if I'm off on fucking Saturday you know, I'll spend the day to, to set up a still site to make it look like it would have looked like when we were making moonshine. Um, we'll get a bunch of drinks together. Me and my wife put a bunch of fucking food together. Let's go out to the woods, have a bonfire, get drunk, right? And whatever shenanigans happen, happen. And right. So Bo captured like 42 hours of the biggest shit show on planet Earth <laughs> and somehow edited this thing into a cohesive last the last print I saw was an hour and a half, a cohesive hour and a half documentary mm-hmm. that fucking works. And I don't know how he did it, but it, it's, it's fucking amazing. Now there's still a lot of shit show stuff in there. Um, right. but I think people will enjoy it greatly. So, so, so my question becomes, and, and maybe we'll, we'll finish with that is how much do I need to send Bo to get the stuff that hit the cutting room floor? Because that's the story that that he's got the story that the storyteller telling and i'm gonna appreciate all of that i guarantee you i will watch it um because the and my wife will too because that's straight up our alley but right I, I, I need the other stuff too i, I want to see the stuff that he was like no that is too I, I can't put that on youtube that's the stuff like is he's there got a lot on? Of, you know what do we got to do here a lot of b-roll stuff and as and, and there will be a lot of it at the at the end of the movie um there's nothing that I will say this. There's nothing that I say or do at any point in time. That is not something that I would not say or do on social media, which does not again, win me a whole lot of fans. Listen, I don't think that's a real high bar to jump over because you right. feel like you're pretty straightforward that you're going to say what you're going to yes. say, regardless of whether social media is there or right. not. Exactly. Um, there's, there's, there were, there's some pretty major fucking shenanigans that happened. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm sure most of that stuff at some point in time will will come out um, for sure. 
Um, I was trying to think. So there's a, there's, there's obviously things that weren't in that trailer uh, that'll be in the movie. Like we, we, somebody brought a bunch of Tannerites and we had, it's not a uh, gathering in the woods without Tannerite. No, fuck no, not in Southern Indiana for sure. And I might've had a, an empty whiskey barrel that we've stuffed full fucking Tannerite and map gas containers. And we blew up a whiskey barrel and, and uh, I don't know if you got this on film or not, but uh, Amzy winning who I absolutely love. uh, (laughs) He's fucking hilarious because he, He's all Amzie's full of all this information, all these all these facts you don't think about. And I'll never forget this. We were by the end of the night, and we should have never been, you know, trying to blow up this barrel, but why wouldn't you? Right? We're on top of a hill out in the middle of nowhere, and and out, out of nowhere, Amzie, who can somehow be more drunk than anyone you've ever met, and yet keep his shit together in a way that you can't logically explain, <laughs> just out of nowhere goes, Oh yeah. The Starlink satellites are supposed to be coming overnight, and you're just—I hear him saying, "I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about?" And like Santa Claus splitting the sky. There it is. Two seconds later, there they fucking go. (laughs) You know, just shit like that. You know that you can't—you can't make that stuff up. Um, I know I got him drunk enough during the first filming. I think everybody except for Bo and Joe Lee went mud fossil hunting at one point in time. And it became a competition of who has the best mud fossil they can show off. And okay. So is mud fossil hunting a real thing or is that like snipe hunting? It's a little bit of both. So okay. yeah. My immediate um, impression was like, there's a little bit of ass hattery here and maybe yeah. some truth. Mm-mm. Yep. Yep. It, it's uh there's, there's an art and a science to mud fossiling, but uh I just came up with it because one time I, I think Amzie even says it in the he tell, talks about it in the documentary, but Amzie used to be a geologist and I told him I found a piece of petrified wood, which I legit thought was a piece of petrified wood. I don't fucking know. I'm not a geologist that looked like a piece of petrified wood. Right. And Amzie literally gives me like the 30 minute dissertation about why there was no petrified wood in the state of Indiana. And I'm like, fuck you, Amzie. Right. <laughs> so then I read this uh, fundamentalist Christian thing about you look up, there's a thing called Mud Fossil University on YouTube. And they literally, they look at these rocks that look like they could have been this thing. And the idea is that uh, the flood happened so quickly that these creatures were covered with mud and it preserved their pure form, right? And so you're just looking for things that look like shit, right? Like I found a, a rock that looked like a snapping turtle's head. And then, you know, that was a napping turtle mud fossil. You know, it takes a year to make a, make a mud fossil. I you know, absolutely I, love this. I'm going to end up having to introduce fo- mud fossil hunting to my children at this it's point. It's great, man. I have so much fun with it. And I literally, <laughs> so I do a lot of rock hounding for fun anyways. One of the things I do to blow off steam. Um, and once I started doing the mud fossil thing, then it went from like looking for geodes and arrowheads and fossils to like, hey, man, mm-hmm. that looks an awful lot like a fucking goose head over there. I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to fucking, I'm going to do a mud fossil video and challenge mm-hmm. Amzie. Or like the, the Dusty Roads videos. I don't know if you've seen those or not, but mm-hmm. um, I stole a, a secondhand jacket from Joe Lee that's a, an American flag jacket, right? It's the most kid rock thing that I've ever seen in my life. Right. And Did I stole it. No, but it should. And so yeah. I stole that from her. And uh, DJ Henderson, my best friend, who's also working on a film with me about the history of distilling here in Southern Indiana, he left a pair of like douchebaggy sunglasses over here one time. So got drunk one night and I was like, I'm going to cut a Dusty Rhodes promo from pro wrestling, right? <laughs> and it just, it turned into a thing. And the reason it started was because 
Jolie found this jacket and she was going to keep it because she thought it was cool. And then I was right. drunk and I stole it from her. And now I refuse to give it back to her. So every once in a while, I have to cut a Dusty Rhodes promo just to fuck with her. Right. Like so, you still have the thing that she wants back. Yeah, absolutely. Well, now it's become, uh, it's being shipped around the country currently to uh, a few other collaborators who are also friends with Jolie, um, along with the sunglasses. And those guys are going to cut Dusty Rhodes promos. So this, right. this is an epic trolling. Like this is a this is a, is. This is a nationwide trolling that you have this, orchestrated here. This has become the uh, the brotherhood of the traveling douche jacket. <laughs> <laughs> There's a book in there. There's a book. Yes. You, know, you can write a book. You you, you know you, you're gonna you're gonna be on the New York Times uh, bestseller right. list from this. But see though, and and those and those little things. All the reason I bring the mud fossil thing up and that whole thing up and the documentary. Those are the kind of things that that actually make this industry fun. When you find those people who can be as irreverent as what you are, um, and still talk good shop and still understand whiskey, those are the ones I want to be friends with, right? And everybody else, I appreciate greatly. I just, yeah. you know, there's that line there, and and uh, yeah, whatever. It's kind of a tangent, but. Yeah. You're not wrong. I mean, like whiskey can be serious, but it doesn't have to be as serious as most people want it to be. You know, nope. we're not curing cancer here. We're making whiskey. You know, that's, that's what we're doing. <laughs> I mean, you, you may eventually, but maybe but at this yeah, point, not, that's not today. <laughs> right. So I, I truly appreciate your time. We're at two hours. Um, you've got to go watch Moonshiners and get your blood pressure up. Yell um, TV. Absolutely. Want to have you back, you know, <laughs> sooner rather than later. I enjoyed this. Um, and, and the reality is I started this podcast with the idea of, I want to get some, some notor, not notoriety, some experience under my belt and then start inviting people to have conversations. Cause that's what I yeah. really wanted to do. Um, so I enjoyed it. Thank you for your time. Yeah. Thank you for agreeing to come on. If you um, ever need an introduction, if there's anybody that, that you don't have a contact with that you want to talk to, let me know. And, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll touch base with them and put you in touch with them. And, uh, you know, a lot of people would li like doing this kind of thing, especially distillers. They like having more laid back conversations like this. They're fun. Yeah. They're free flowing and you get a lot of good info. I, I listen. I listen to a lot of the people I want to talk to and I try to not ask the questions that other people have already asked. Like Absolutely. there's nothing. I work in an industry where I give the same status report five times a week. And mm -hmm. man, after the fifth time, I just, I, I want to run off and jump off the balcony of, of, of my house here. So I'm like, eh, you know, if I can avoid the shit everybody else is asking, let's talk about something new and interesting. In yep. that vein, I appreciate you being on here. I appreciate your interview that you did about land race gardening. We didn't talk about that at all, but I have that yep. book now. I gave it to my wife. Um, our COVID pandemic project was I built a greenhouse because that's the thing yeah. she's into. And so this land race gardening is now a thing. Yep. Maybe that's a conversation for next time. But definitely, um, I appreciate you joining me. I'm going to hit my outro, so I'm going to remove you from this. Thank you for all being right. here tonight, Alan. Yes, sir. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Embellished Podcast. Um, whenever you join, you happen to watch this, whether it's tonight or today, I hope you give it a review, do something like that. Hope you found it entertaining. Um, if you did, please leave me a review. Like I said, please leave a review, a comment, whatever. Um, hit, me up, hit me up on social media, uh, Twitter, Instagram, EmbellishPod or EmbellishPod.com. Um, TikTok, wherever you happen to find me, Facebook. That's where I, I'm, I'm hopefully everywhere at this point. And if you give me a follow, you can kind of see what's going on. All of my links are on embellishpod.com, accounts, contact details. I'll be back again next week with a, another new offering for you. I hope you enjoyed what we talked about tonight. Um, got a few more planned in the very near future, but that'll that's where we'll leave it for tonight. So thank you. <laughs>